0: Of keeping the virus down, but uh, now all the all these restaurants have just published. Hey, you can go out and have a robust business lunch book with us now.
1: So uh, here (laughs) we go. How is that? How is that defined? Yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't
0: know. So, but I am going to have a robust business lunch tomorrow in Galcho. So I'll let you know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Would have to include a couple of pints of Guinness, right? Exactly. Exactly.
3: exactly.
4: Yes, robust means with adult beverage.
2: They should get <laughs> in, uh, Guinness.
4: <laughs> Actually,
5: I heard there was a big fight in London over masks at a gas station.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the mask thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, I just I went to the I went to the shops this morning, and um, you know, it's like a, it's like a scene from an, another world because. Everybody's in masks, but the crazy thing here is restaurants. So if I go for dinner with my wife, I have to. I can walk to the shop without a mask. Without a mask. Uh, to the restaurant without a mask. I, I have to enter the restaurant with a mask until I get <coughs> sat down at my seat, and then I can take my mask off again. Are you oh, yeah, um, safe? So if- I mean, I, I do, you know, I do get it. You know, the more times people wear masks, the, the less spread there is. But, you know, some of the rules are a little crazy, I'm afraid.
1: So speaking of masks and all the rest, uh, I've got, uh, let's see. If, and this is really... So those who, who saw it, this is, this is my sort of the highlights of last, uh, week here, so. And this is
6: really, really interesting chart, which shows you Admissions in ICU in the UK, which is the dark line, uh, from March to to August. And then the the orange line is from September, October until now. This report was released last week, so it's very, very recent. And you actually find that the number of ICU admissions are actually not, not very high. That's one observation. And the second observation is that they're not rising very fast. I think the vaccine will go right in front of front of this if you look at the vaccines that are currently in development the strongest likelihood that out there is that we will have a vaccine which will probably not protect you entirely from infection you will still get infected but you will not have severe disease and that is a major that will be a major breakthrough
3: going back to february and showing daily deaths in the u.s deaths per day and you see the peak in the spring you see a big decline Mandates were relaxed, uh, we started to go up and and down, et cetera, and now we're showing a sizable increase uh, going you know peaking in mid January
7: i think I think the insights and the data that's been shared has been so helpful. I know you know for me personally um, just trying to get a good understanding of what's real as opposed to what is Spun one way or another um, is very.
1: Now you notice one thing, I've I've got a protocol with my, with uh, Stonehaven. As long as I throw these disclaimers at the front and back, and uh, and everybody's on the app, I can throw soon full recordings and transcripts on the app. So, and I can try to do that within an hour of an event. That's we're almost there. So that was on the virus, and so the bill. When's the next uh, virus update?
7: Three. I'm thinking. I'm thinking maybe early December, first week of December, something like that, because that'll give us a little time to kind of work through the current environment. How's that sound to you guys?
1: Um, I'm just throwing up on the calendar on the screen. Um, or, yeah, early December. We're not going to have a monthly conference in December, so December will be more flexible. So, and then on that subject, anything in particular people want to either see or suggest the people who could, we could bring in to the conversation? It seems to me we didn't cover so much the investment opportunities on the biotech or other ancillary sides. Um, but what do people think? Welcome, Drew Butler. I haven't seen you in a while. Hi, Mark. You, speaking of companies, COVID advantaged. Um, with a Peloton six feet away from me, you know, <laughs> Peloton's done quite well. I hope your family has done well too. I like to pick winners. I like to pick winners. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about about the the virus. We had an an, an event last week, and just, we, we want to have like a the next step. And so, Bill Deukler, you've been an architect of that. But if anyone in this in this group wants to suggest, you know, if you look, on that screen are the events coming up that are scheduled, um, that with registration pages and all the right, all the rest, and then on the right are in progress. I guess I should add, um. I'm not sure what we titled it. It's sort of another COVID-19 update. But, I, again, I, my, I think the missing piece, I thought it was a great event. The pizza piece was, was where, where can we invest? What do you think, Bill?
7: Yeah, I think, um, you know, probably, you know, Vishal's pretty involved with that. Uh, so, you know, he might be a good guy, you know, to talk about. It's probably, you know, relatively fluid at the moment. But nonetheless, you know, we can we can kind of reach out and uh, and see, you know, Steve was interested in uh, in coming back, you know, as well. I know he's he's more on the public market side and that that actually might be an interesting angle as well. So, you know, between between Steve and Vishal, you know, we've got both public and private markets covered.
1: Yeah, maybe Vishal could bring a, a few CEOs Um that could shed some light and and even promised us some slides or data decks um since I don't have a relationship with him do you do you mind asking him for that or you would you prefer we do
7: um yeah i I can inquire
1: uh he had said that he had a he had slides on every country I was just very curious to see what what that looks like. Any oh, options?
7: okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that, uh, if you go to the IHME, uh, website, okay, you can, you can access the information there and here, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll put the, I'll, I'll go there and, and put the link on in the chat. That's great. Cause I know, I know there's other stuff, but it's, it's very limited, uh, distribution. Okay. Um,
2: but the stuff that's
7: on the website, on the website. Well,
1: good. Th- thanks, thanks for all all this. This is good stuff. Um, and just coming up in the near term, we've got well, as in like an hour, we have the philanthropy impact deep dive. And just to, and I was Zach, uh, really, it's, took the leadership. I'm trying to set it up so that everybody. Uh, Whatever you want to do, we just offer the soil and the watering so you guys can do your events. And then later this week, um, Ben Foreman and Hamlet uh, will talk about uh, fintech, cybersecurity, and hopefully Carol and Joe and I will, will moderate. Joe and I just fixed your slide just a little bit on eSports gaming that you're putting together, which is great. we got no private, private, public, um, and then... I was going to show this isn't as updated I was going to show a few of the things but um, yeah I guess what for today this the philanthropy event really is about number seven um, you know impact thing impact. next gen. We, we do next I'm here to echo but is really focusing on philanthropy and you know sort of inside the interest groups um, but we do have this survey and I would like since we're all like co-leader types, I'm going to throw in the chat. Um, appreciate it if everybody could just share your your interests as it comes to philanthropic interests. If you haven't, when you log into the app next, you'll be uh, flagged for it as well. So we everybody's um, everybody's profile will reflect that, and then we'll have events that will go more deeper and specific into these uh, the UN social development goal, initiatives. So oh, can I
0: throw a, uh, a random thing in here? And uh, and I have to disclose a, uh, a slight of bias in, in, in this because it's something yep. I'm working on. Yep. But um, one of the things um, you've probably seen on the SEC website um, um, that there's a whole conversation about um, votes on minority shareholders through mutual funds, pension funds. I can show you the link um, to this group. If not, it's about basically the SEC is saying um, minority shareholders don't need to bother voting. Um, It's fine. We'll take care of it. And um, I'd be interested, you know, if it's possible. And I I say because I'm working on something called citizen shareholders, which Mm -hmm. is, is personal. To me, um, uh, full disclosure, um, you know, I'd just be interested in people's views on, you know, is, is that an issue that you're concerned about if you have a mutual fund that the SEC is suggesting you don't need to bother voting on your underlying stock? Because I think it has impacts on the ESG impact side of things, mm-hmm. where people might have a view on certain things which are important to them, climate action, action. ocean, things like that, and if we take that away, I, I think I'd be a little concerned personally, personally. but uh, maybe I'll, I'll send it to you, Mark, and you can see whether you think it's appropriate or not.
1: Th- throw it in the chat, or you know what to do. We have this thing mm-hmm. called the gap. Yeah,
0: no, no. I do. No problem. I don't. Noted.
1: But if anybody has it, what do you think, Stephen Burke, on this subject? Uh,
8: I'm not up to speed on it. But um, the amount of votes that BlackRock and Vanguard and the big companies have, um, I'm not sure. It's kind of like being a, uh, you know, a Republican in a fully Democratic state or a Democrat in a fully Republican state. Does the vote really matter? I think I think I get where Mark's coming from. You don't want your votes not to count. And you certainly don't want to give it to the SEC to do. Um, but. You know I think it's a i think it's an important issue but i am not sure how the how the plays out
0: plays out yeah no that's fine yeah, and uh, that's um, fine. if I can share the, the the deck on the app and then um you can have a look at your thoughts and uh, it's it's kind of using a app based technology sure. um sort of to actually collate the votes and and false fund managers down the route but um
1: yeah a little bit altruistic
0: but yeah. You know
1: what? No, no, trans. Mark, isn't
8: isn't that what relying on you know the uh, ISS and the other guys to that most mutual funds have the votes go for? Uh, it's that Excellent. same problem all over again, only magnified.
0: Excellent point, Stephen. Yes, that's exactly where if you go to J.P. Morgan, that's the route they go down um, yep. to use this. This what it this does is it takes it down to the individual on their app, mm-hmm. and if the fund manager signs up to the app then they uh, go the way that the individual underlying shareholders vote with their app. So um, I don't want to bore everybody on this. Um, a the technology, technology, technology,
8: Mark, you're right. Given the technology we have today, you know, blockchain and others, they should be able to do this right. effectively, exactly. um, but their systems aren't up to speed. That's so it's it. just a question of marrying the technologies to the, to the intent. That's
1: exactly right. Exactly right. Mark, please do th- throw it on the app, and we'll get it, yep. we'll air it out. Okay, super. Thanks. If anyone else have a a cause? Of, whether it's whether it's along those lines or any of the lines that we've talked about that you want to? I mean, I guess in in process. If I'm looking at this. We've got the closed loop economy is impact oriented. It's Turner's leading there's the mental health bits um conscious capitalism that sarah was talking about uh in quasi trying to shed lights on what's what's happening in africa um but yeah if anyone if anyone has ideas uh, has ideas what to pursue i know i know michael daly we wanted to talk about tax planning uh post i can't really say pre-elections as much uh you're saying no, no, don't do it. No, you don't want. You don't want to do it. What, what does that mean? I would love to explore it. Okay, but you're like Indians. You're shaking your head this way when you really meant yes.
4: <laughs> do 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 do.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, that's something we do want to do. Want to hit any anyone else? Denise, it would be helpful if uh, – I know that Simon's preoccupied with future of work and 5G, but the guys from real estate need just a little push to get that one going on the future of real estate.
9: Yeah, I'll I actually have – I'm speaking with Steve this week, actually. Steve, Chun and I have a call for later this week. So, so. Someone's got that echo
1: going. Strange. I'll, I'll just mute a few people. And you, it, that would be great if you could just give I just think it needs a nudge and and
9: it starts to go. Yeah. So I'll follow up with him this week and I'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. And secondly, myself and Bill actually caught up during um, during this past week on conscious capitalism. So I have some ideas shaping around that. When I have more substance to it, I have some other ideas that people can pull in. I'll bring it to the group here for more of a discussion around the tenets of conscious capitalism and how I think that could go. So those are the two things that I'm looking at.
1: Okay, good. Any uh, thing else before we, I mean, I'm just going to give everybody a five-minute break before we move into the, the 11, because eleven's going to go straight to the, and Stephen Burke's going to talk about um, interesting election math. I don't think that's been updated, that one. Uh, I wonder. Yeah, my whole team said that they updated this. I think we're on two different two different ones. This is last week's file with this different headline. Oh, i
8: can get it to come back. <laughs> yeah.
2: What did you guys think of it?
8: He, he bailed me out last week. <laughs> 5G was that was an awesome. Uh,
1: like he, he really made it, it, it understandable for so many people. So that was a
8: great. Yeah, he's so. he's really good. All right, I wanna he, well, if anyone wants wants a, a more on that, uh, we did a conference call on that last week um, that is available on our website. Now, Mark, I can forward it over to you now. I think we have it approved to go. Okay, great. You could probably put it on the app, but I'm not sure how that
9: works. <laughs>
1: Jace, if you're on it, we, we need your how-to how videos on the app. <laughs> if possible. how uh, two for Luddites. Uh, what else are people seeing, wanting to see? I'm
8: pulling something up, trying to find the right slides. Anything else? I think the real estate one is really important right now with the de-urbanization. And I think we're people are feeling it right now, um so I think that one is going to be uh really important for global economies. Well,
1: I was gonna say on that um uh, Ari Moses with the fisher brothers is a he's got this really interesting thing going in Las Vegas. he was supposed to go to forty cities and twenty countries. Like experiential, uh, events, uh, space, um, that sort of slowed down with COVID, but, uh, he's, he's willing to join Denise. It's a different segment of the market. They're also investors also with, with Meow Wolf. If you're familiar with Meow Wolf.
3: So, so Mark, I wonder if the, if, if the, uh, transformation that's happening with adoption of technology and remote and, and things like uh, trade shows no longer being held in Vegas, if brand awareness and brand building is going to change and and what that's going to look like uh, going forward. And obviously I'm thinking of Tom, Tom Jump, right? Who's, you know, has, has a lot of knowledge in that space. But, you know, I, I wonder how, how, how that gets altered if at all going forward. Tom?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, it's going to transform. I mean, in many ways, it's going to change and. You know, I think um, we're moving to a world of kind of it's about experiences, and it's not really about communication. But it's it's kind of a much much broader, longer topic. You know, we could throw it on the list. I'd be I'd be happy to put something together. It's kind of right in my wheelhouse.
1: And so, what would you do? True business transformation or or future branding?
2: I I I think it's I think it's. it, at the core of business transformation. And that's, that, I think that's the, that's where I'd start.
10: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, every, I mean, look, if, if a company isn't digital now, they're going to go out of business. You know, whether you're selling consumer goods, uh, or services, um, it doesn't matter. You have to think of yourselves as a, as a technology company. Um, and you know, we're doing a lot of work with a lot of clients, both startups and established companies, on transformation. So, I'd be happy to kind of put together a session on that. I think, frankly, there's also a tangential to that. I mean, companies, and there's plenty of data and evidence. Companies who really believe in the power of a brand, and a brand is a lot more than a set of products and services. The, uh, the the ROI is much, much more robust. The multiple in selling a company like that is much higher. So it's it's all kind of linked.
8: Mm-hmm. Tom, it also gets into the shift in the in the employee base and how how your culture is built and how your culture reflects the brand and vice versa. So we had talked about that um, cultural issue as well and whether that can be should be connected to this one or separate. Is uh, you'd know better.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, look it like life, everything's, uh, interconnected. And, um, in many ways, it all starts with the company defining, you know, a, a clear and meaningful purpose, right? That all their stakeholders kind of buy into that drives everything, you know, culture, product, services, business model, right? Yeah. Um, and it allows you to kind of broaden your ecosystem of where you can grow the business. So anyway, I, it's, it, you're absolutely right, Stephen. It's all kind of connected, Um and uh, it could be—it'd be a wonderful kind of session to get the perspective of people really look at the investment side, because yeah. the power of brand and uh can really tra- help transform a business.
8: Yeah, you Art, know, we're finishing up an outlook right now, and it's talking about the. And then I touched on this last week—the five critical transformations we see going on. And the implications of those on businesses are so deep, and I don't think many people are able or ready to be adjusting to it. Uh, And you'll have a big narrowing of the winners uh, versus those who can't adapt.
11: Did you see the story about uh, Nokia doing 4G on the moon right after your conference?
8: Yes, I did.
11: That was pretty cool. Yeah, That was a good way to top off your event. It was like planned.
8: I wish we were that clever. Um, Yeah. And then they're also talking about for the water event, Mark, the uh, water content up on the moon now.
11: Yeah, I I didn't read much about that, but the fact is that this, I don't know, I worry about how what we're going to do to the moon. We kind of need the moon. (laughs) Mars is one thing, but the moon is pretty close (laughs) between internet and taking water from it. I don't know how that, you know, weird. Who knows?
8: The other big news today if I don't know if people saw is China's expansion of their Bitcoin uh, their Bitcoin aspirations and that right. they're actually talking about creating theirs and shutting down all the other ones which I'm not 100% sure how they would do that um but if any country could it would probably be China uh in terms of their control of the internet but that's going to be pretty fascinating how that plays out at the same time JP Morgan announced that they're doing something and uh uh, Bitcoin and blockchain that could lower transaction costs. So that's a fast moving area as well.
1: Well, that does. Well, we are, we are going to have a, uh, another fintech event on
11: Thursday. So. Yep. We well, well uh, guess kind of plays into on November 12th. One of my speakers, Angela Dalton, uh, who I think is amazing. One of her key uh, talking points is going to be about how blockchain can be used. To hold, you know, digital assets. So the value of a, of a virtual Gucci slipper versus the value of a real life Gucci slipper won't be that different uh, eventually because of that blockchain technology. So very interesting stuff. Yep. Fair enough.
1: Well, if you guys want to take a, a minute or two break, I was trying to give you five, but I see that the hour is is, is nine. But we will. uh I'm just gonna kick off. I was gonna re- replay that video for some talk about just really like three four minutes, and then I'm gonna hand it over to you, Stephen, because you're going to provoke us again.
8: I think the topic is doesn't need my help <laughs> put it that way.
1: Yeah, one, of, there are two topics. One of which is election math, <laughs> so you can imagine. And I've I heard from Joe Jarrett back uh On that subject today, I think there's a there's a real scenario there.
8: Is he on the call today, Mark?
1: I don't see him yet. But uh anything else before we jump into this? Nope. I don't know if Joe Zaro's on. I always tell Joe I I should take a dollar for every time he says, you know, I should probably get, pay you guys a dollar every time I say either app or anything else, anything. I'm just trying to encourage,
2: um, discussion here. Are you Uh, getting much, uh, activity on the app, though, Mark?
1: It, it, yeah, it is. And it's not as, you know, robust, like the lunch that Mark Jarvis is going to have in London, um, and that's not because there's no adult beverages, but, uh, it's, it's, it's happening. There's, the, what's happening that I don't see is DMs, direct messages. Maybe I'll just, any excuse for me to show everybody the app, right? Um, and. I mean,
2: that was, I didn't set you up intentionally, but it worked out, right?
1: Yes, so thank you. Um, well, you can see, by the way, uh, that you can now f- offer filtering, um, but, yeah, the, the direct messages, um, like here's Denise, you know, that's I wanna send you you, Tom, uh you know, this is where everybody can, you know, make use of this and and they are. That but I it's all encrypted, I don't see it. So that is an interesting thing. Um, that's happening more and more and more. You know, we I wish there were more posts and activity, but We'll get there. Once Stephen Birch starts using the app, that's my telltale sign that this is really going to happen. But we have uh, 420 uh, users, and I think the
2: you know also with with that you get more activity. So let's we need to get Stephen his own little private community manager.
8: In fairness, I think the thing you asked for earlier with the interest I already put in on the into the. Uh, you did? I believe so. Well, we're going to check. Sorry. Not that I saved it right, but I actually went and put it in.
11: This, uh, this
1: shows me all the posts. Nope. Endorser. That was Paul Linden has the last, last post. But maybe you put something in a chat. In any event, I'll, I'll, but thank you for letting me talk about the app there. So. It's an amazing app. I endorse it. I will use it more. All right. Well, thank you. Um, was, uh, your your ten dollar credit comes up.
12: Uh, again. Can I say it again for ten more?
1: No, I actually lose the ten dollars if you say it again. If <laughs> you talk about saying it, okay. So look, everybody, we got a lot of other people that that didn't hear this. Just uh, the tomorrow, for example, we'll have a uh, the the event coordination calls, and those are about these events that are scheduled. And then over here to the right, the ones that were talking about a couple other subjects came up uh just just today. Um I think it was about branding, the future of branding, Tom Jump, uh was prompted by Jim Fulkowski and um, you know, and some of these others already have uh panels coming together, which is great. And, you know, we'll we just we again we just offer the soil and the watering to help everybody uh, you know, Michael Daly, who I, I guess I owe $10 to, is going to be hopefully helping us with post-election tax planning. Um, you know, all those, you know, and if you want to get involved, 10.30 every, every day, uh, Monday through Thursday, we're, we're here on the Zoom. Today, after this uh, session, we're going to talk about philanthropy, which I'm ex- very excited about. This is something, you know, my family office, we all had our uh, like for example, Rob Horowitz is about foster care. He's been in that, focused on that for, for decades. And, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, his daughter, um, just had a baby three weeks early. So he's not able to join today, but Mauricio Tota, I don't know if he's on yet, who's buying, I think he owns 0.5% of the Amazon forest is trying to make that 10 to 25%. And sort of a win-win. He's going to talk about that and Mamadou and Nicole and Charles will shed their lights. So I think this is something that we're going to spend a lot of time on, fintech and cybersecurity on Thursday, sports, gaming, public-private. Um, and we had just talked about the virus. Um, we're going to have a an, another follow-up in, in early December uh, on the virus, and I'm going to, for those who weren't around, I'm going to um, – play a little um, video montage of uh, what we learned Let's see if I can find it I had it teed up but I will tee it up again there we go so
6: and this is really really interesting chart which shows you, Admissions in ICU in the U.K., which is the dark line, uh, from March to to August. And then the, the orange line is from September, October until now. This report was released last week, so it's very, very recent. And you actually find that the number of ICU admissions are actually not not very high. That's one observation. And the second observation is that they're not rising very fast. I think the vaccine will go right in front of front of this. If you look at the vaccines that are currently in development, the strongest likelihood out there is that we will have a vaccine, which will probably not protect you entirely from infection. You will still get infected, but you will not have severe disease. And that is a major, that will be a major breakthrough.
3: Going back to February and showing daily deaths in the US, deaths per day. And you see the peak in the spring, you see a big decline, Mandates were relaxed. Uh, we started to go up and and down, et cetera. And now we're showing a sizable increase uh, going, you know, peaking in mid January.
7: I think, I think the insights and the data that's been shared has been.
8: Actually, I wanted to go back.
3: Going back to Fed in mid January.
1: If you can see this, it, it's all going up. Two, you're looking at either one and a half to two to five and a half thousand deaths per day uh, going into February. That's also partly seasonal.
7: I think I think the insights and the data that's been shared has been so helpful. I know, you know, for me personally, um, just trying to get a good understanding of what's real as opposed to what is spun one way or another um, is. So, again,
1: thank you again. Bill Doikler for helping to put that together. And uh, as many of you did see, we on the we, this was posted on the Weekly Digest. Along with some new groups, we have uh, the India Group, Korea, which is also going to have a tribal uh, event, Tusk Tel Aviv, and KAUST, Armed Forces, U.S. or otherwise, X or current and uh, Jonathan Tepper is a Rhodes Scholar, so we start set up Rhodes Scholars, some new members. You can all see those below, and what's happening this week. So that's uh, by way of quick update. And Mark,
13: I just wanted to share something. I wanted to just say how much I appreciated the um, panel for the COVID. Um, I wrote a piece just recently on LinkedIn about research and how to be a discriminating consumer. With research, and I really appreciated how they put um, the research in perspective and uh, how you can't compare certain apples with oranges and all that other good stuff.
1: Well, in those, the two pillars of that event will come back, uh, and we're just going to couple that with a more um, So more research, more data, but also a little emphasis on investments opportunities. Um, So I'm going to turn it over. Some of these slides are for the for the 11:30, including the philanthropic survey. So I'm just going to turn it over to you, Stephen, and enlighten us on October 27th. I'll stop sharing so you can.
8: Okay. Thank you. There we go. Um, Thank you. So I wanted to uh, go over the skills gap and take another look at that um, and then talk about the election math from a different perspective. And uh, both of these are uh, going over some uh, old discussions that we've had here, but I think they're both relevant for where we are today and going forward. Um, So let's just get started on the skills gap. (laughs) I saw this quote and I thought it was fascinating. Uh, what's most interesting about it from the FT is that this, uh, quote about the UK government being aware of the threat and the threat was the skills gap, uh, was written in 1968. So we're, we're rehashing old ground here. So this is not new stuff. What is new though is the combination of, uh, tech adoption, which continues and, uh, how the COVID virus is, is, uh, going on. Um, and they call this in a, in a new report from the World Economic Forum, uh, the double disruption scenario. And, and it's playing out in a lot of places and, uh, having a pretty significant impact. Um, we all know that jobs get destroyed through creative destruction and, and all that. The numbers that the report is looking at by 2025, it'll be 85 million jobs in the U.S. destroyed and 97 million jobs created. Um, this is a pretty interesting uh, approach that they're taking, and they're also focused on inequality getting uh, exacerbated by this uh, scenario. So it's the same problem with different skills that we're looking at. You know, 68, they didn't have enough engineers. Um, you know, now we're looking at uh, do we have the right uh, skills, core skills to do the jobs uh, going forward, and I want to touch on that in a minute, but they shared some statistics about the inequality issue that I wanted to highlight. Uh, and this lower paid, uh, uh, lower educated and younger workers and the problem we have here gets back to something we've talked about before, economic scarring, and it can go on for a generation and wipe out the productive capacity of one of our most important groups, our younger people. Um, what's interesting, what they're seeing right now in the UK is the peak unemployment uh, for the better paid workers is less than half the rate of the uh, peak unemployment for others. And this just speaks to how uh, the pandemic is exacerbating the problem. So they're also focused on the fact that the UK government's Industrial Strategy Council, uh, you know, thinks that this could, um, could be changed if we focus on the, the, uh, challenges ahead of us. So it's going to take a lot of work by governments and, uh, back to a conversation we're having earlier, uh, we have to hope they're up to the task, but, uh, there's going to be a lot of things that are required to get there, including private public partnerships. What was interesting in the report, and there's a million charts and, and all that that, uh, uh, Mark, if we could put that up for people to look at, I sent it over yesterday. Uh, But they're talking about the top five skills for the next five years. And this is not exactly the, you know, all STEM all the time, like people are uh, being led to believe. It's really about the skills that you need to do jobs in a world that's changing very rapidly around us. So these are the top five they focused on, adding to that skills to complement, you know, the technology move that we have going on. So it's it's interesting. It's a challenge for education. Are we – uh, you know, there's a, a lot of talk about moving away from liberal arts and going to much more focused in trade schools and all that. But throughout our education systems, we have to focus on not only the hard skills, but a lot of the sh- softer skills. And that's going to take a whole, uh, you know, the implications for this are broad, getting into education, government, public-private partnerships and the like. So this is an important area that we're going to have to continue to be focused on as we go forward these things are not going to stop. Uh, you can't stop the, the uh, movement that's going on. Um, we're in the process of finishing an outlook that I touched on last week about the five big transformations that we see going on that are critical to not only how we live, uh, work, and learn, but also how we govern going forward. And I think this is all coming together, this uh, massive transformation that our world's changing at a much more dramatic rate than we're able to adapt to. And you know, Tom Friedman in his book, uh, Thank You for Being Late, really highlighted how fast the world's moving and how much faster it's moving than our ability to uh, acknowledge it, you know, and adapt and adjust to the changes that are going on. So a lot of challenges coming, a lot of changes in how we think about the skills. What I found fascinating um, coming from a liberal arts education is, uh, and working with my kids who all just graduated from different uh, schools, are we doing enough on the critical thinking and analysis, but combining that with creativity originality initiative? Um, you can't get all these things all the time in one person. It's the question of how do we balance the uh, skills that we have? And how does education match up the skills required to the uh, uh natural abilities of people. And a lot of these things are, you can train. Um, some of them take a little bit more effort, but I thought this is a fascinating report. Um, there's a lot to it. So a um, uh, lot to get through, but it just came out recently. And I think is worth uh, focusing on um, moving to the elect election. And I want to just focus on this because this is a, it's a fascinating time we're going through. And as Mark highlighted, um, uh you could see a lot of problems coming out of the the election next week um and how soon it's going to be before we have a good clear idea of it but i thought i'd just share how the popular vote has changed uh over the years and what the differential was in each election um as you can see a million vote difference in uh in 2000 with uh over a million uh, 100 million votes but you're seeing it ratchet up to a peak in 08 with the biggest differential that we've had, uh, I just saw some numbers from real clear that, um, right now the, uh, differential for Biden, uh, actually is about, uh, nine points. Um, Tom's better at this than I am about, uh, the, uh, Tom jump would know better the, uh, rounding errors on surveys and statistics. But, um, when we go back to the 16 election, it was 128 million votes all in. A differential of the popular vote of uh, 2.86 million and the electoral uh, uh, vote differential in the swing states that really tipped it was 900,000 votes out of the 128 million. So where are we going to, where are we looking at right now? So best projections from one of the sources I, I lean on is 150 million voters up from 128 million. Um Using the rough average of real clear politics and, uh, 535, you know, you can come up with a conservative forecast for, uh, the spread between Trump and Biden. I said it's around nine points right now. Take a two point rounding, uh, differential, uh, two and a half, three points, somewhere around there, and you get this 51, uh, 46 on the popular votes. And uh, the result would be a seven and a half million dollar million person win. The question that um, was raised by John Ellis in his uh, news service that he provides, and he actually has a collection of uh, different news uh, services, uh, was that uh, what would happen if Trump wins the Electoral College and the Democrats win the popular vote by seven and a half million? Will that be contested in a different way than uh, has been discussed? So a lot of confusion, a lot of questions coming up. The swing state issues are really interesting right now and shifting almost by the day. And with the mail-in votes, it's going to uh, really be uh, something. But what would happen if Trump won again with this type of a popular vote, losing this um, number of votes in the popular vote? How are people going to react to that? Um, as everyone knows, it's been a very volatile time in the U.S. for some time with uh, civil unrest and the like. Um, but this is going to be a fascinating thing to watch and see how these numbers play out and also how they shift in the next couple of days uh, in key states, um, Pennsylvania being one of them. And I heard a great description of Pennsylvania. Uh, it's blue in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama and the rest of the state. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of changes in what has been the traditional voting patterns uh, in states, particularly with some of the uh, – uh, de-urbanization that's going on and the shifting and voting and all that, uh, how it changes the mix. So a lot of noise is going to come in the uh, numbers. There'll be a lot of things that people will not believe, um, but the reality is we're going to live with it after and on November, on January 20th or 21st, uh, we'll move forward, but it will not be without a lot of conflict. So uh, lastly, I mentioned we're uh, finishing off a new outlook on uh, some big transformations should be out in the next week and a half. Um, and uh, we're covering the five transformations I touched on last week. So uh, with that, Mark, I'll uh, uh, turn it back to you and be happy to open up to questions.
3: Hey, Stephen. Yes. Hi. Uh, so thank you. Uh Interesting. Um, and you know you're really t- touching there on the Electoral College, yep. right? Because if you look at the last twenty sixteen election, um, uh Hillary Clinton won California by three and a half million votes. Um, but you know but, but but won the popular vote across the country by I forget your number, you know, less than that. Um, uh which says that um, and so so you're so the seven and a half million that referred refer to would be interesting to look at but you think the distribution of that looks like that really you know, ties into what the 2016 uh, uh, popular vote versus the electoral college vote uh, was? Because um, it's because I think uh, you know in, in, in your in your reference about Pennsylvania, that's that's very true in lots of states, Illinois, Chicago, Cook County, heavily blue. You know the rest of it. Um, uh, uh, Republican In New York, New York City, very blue. The rest of New York, red. Um, you know, it's kind of an MSA type of thing, even Massachusetts. So anyway.
8: Yeah, the other interesting thing you you bring up a great point, and you know the the reality is that most of the country um, doesn't understand how the electoral college actually works, um, and I think. I would put myself in that camp for part of it. Um, I'm not an expert on it, but what you're seeing with the shifts that are going on right now, um, I think are going to, I think the numbers will be the numbers because people are, they're bringing more people out to vote that jump from, you know, uh, the Ob- first Obama win of, you know, 131 million to a period where you're, where you're seeing, you know, 20 million more voters. Where are they going to show up? Where, what states, what areas? are uh, are they coming from. That's going to be a fascinating thing to see how it plays out. And we'll only really know ex, uh, after the election. So um, you know, people are really trying to more uh, guesstimate right now than they than they can know. And um, you know, we have a lot of migration going on in the US and you just think about the moves from to different states, it's it's uh uh gonna be pretty impactful. Um the other thing is Because of the migration and whether it's people moving from California to Arizona or Texas or the East Coasters moving to uh, Florida or other lower tax states like the Carolinas, you have a lot of shifts going on that are going to throw off a lot of the old, um, a lot of the old voting patterns and things that were more predictable. So I think most of the population won't get it. The people who are really in the know will will understand that. And that's going to create some more Uh, Uncertainty and more doubt in the quality of the election. I don't think it has an impact on the reality of the votes. It's just not what people are used to.
14: Hey, Steve. It's uh, it's Rob Colerino here. The um, uh, I wanted to go back to the first part of your presentation. Um, Why did they choose London? Was it London or was it UK as a base for the data? Um, I'm, um, I'm 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 joining here from New York city on a visit and you know I was just thinking about the digital divide we talked about a couple weeks ago and you're already seeing um that divide happening between the weather changes and people fighting for bandwidth and what have you but I was curious as to the UK seems pretty progressive was that a safe safe start or it it seems like you could have started in some other places um including from Asia or some of the emerging markets um, spots
8: so I pulled the information from two sources the FT and the uh and the uh, world economic forum and the F the L- more London oriented was ft related. So it's not a symbol of what's going on in the world. It's just a microcosm.
14: But um, I mean, I guess from the data there, it, it seems like the, the divide is going to be even worse in, on um, in lesser established uh, metropolitan uh, places.
8: Uh, that may be, I think the divide is, is um, around the same stuff. We've talked about all the time. The, um you know, you, you're, you're seeing this, uh, industries destroyed and a lot of the industries that are being destroyed and a lot of the jobs that are going with it are all being, uh, transformed and replaced by technology or the functions are being replaced by technology. And the more that goes on, the more difficult it gets to, um, reverse. And, you know, that's why governments have a real issue ahead of them and businesses also, because sooner or later the labor pool has to reflect that. And what's going on with changes in education right now uh, are all going to be related. So it's a highly interconnected uh, scenario, which makes it really hard to solve. Um, But we have to start solving it uh, more quickly and add to that. The monetary policy is further exacerbating the inequality because it's benefits those with assets. So all this stuff comes together. And when we talk about um, in our next outlook, the five transformations, the five are, um, the digital transformation, the climate transformation, uh, the monetary and fiscal policy transformation that's going on. And then you can add into that the geopolitical and, uh, political transformations that are going on. And what we have in around the world is the pendulum swings in, in elections, um, from, you know, either the far right to the far left or uh, something in between. It's just a question of where we are in, in the pendulum swings right now. And when you have so many people uh, that are being left behind, it tends to swing back to the left. And, you know, the, I think governments have a real challenge, as do corporations. No corporation is going to be off the hook in this uh, to deal with in solving the problem other comments on
1: skills or election or or anything. Simon Vine, did you want to make a comment? You sent me a chat.
15: Yes, good morning everyone. Thank you very much, Steve and uh, Mark. I just wanted to maybe not comment, but um, uh, tell you very quickly, give you an overview, which uh, basically, um, Uh, We'll summarize uh, uh, a few other experienced industrial revolutions and the objective is to just show that whatever Steve was talking about right now is exactly what people faced before. And I will start with the Middle Ages when you remember uh, the uh, ships ate the peasants, the period when in British history, uh, the uh, ships would... uh, uh, deployed all over England because uh, the production of um, wool uh, became very important. All wool was exported to Belgium. Uh, and uh, million, uh, thousands of, hundreds of thousands of uh, English peasants ended up uh, dying on the streets uh, completely poor. Then we had the Luditz in the 19th century, the same situation when the They were protesting against the automation of the industry. When you think about the first Industrial Revolution, you had the same effect. Um, And um, you can probably remember that the the employers were trying to substitute workers with slaves. Uh, Slavery was not prohibited in England in those days. And the average life of a young slave was about two to three years. It was a horrible period where people suffered. And then when you go back to the 19th century, the second industrial revolution, it becomes quite obvious um, uh, that the trends are literally the same. If somebody read Marx in the original form, as I had to, not that I'm a Marxist, but, uh, you know, some concepts were very right. Uh, he described all the same things which we're observing right now and which Steve mentioned. Uh, All these gaps in education, uh, in alienation of the workforce, all of this were were there. And I will just remind you that uh, the capital was uh, published first around 15 years after the uh, beginning of the Second Industrial Revolution, which happened in the uh, 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 mid-1850s. So right now we're about the same period of time. Uh, from the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution, which started with the invention of iPhone. So basically the summary is that almost everything which we're, uh, we think we're encountering now is not new. Uh, things happened before. And um, I'm very optimistic because the society is much more mature and society, the society really wants people to get educated and close to this gap. But again, as um, those who, don't see this as a part of the normal process of the new technology uh, uh, involvement in the, with the society, uh, think that something outrageous happens. Uh, and it is outrageous because we're kind of saying that you know, the, uh, it's a creative destruction. I mean, and it's creative if, destruction happened before. Thank you.
1: I just, if I go, just because of time, we're, we're about to transition to the philanthropy. Impact deep tide, but any last comments on what Simon, Simon's history lesson or Stephen's comments or otherwise? I wish I had Professor Vine and uh, maybe we should go back to school. I guess this is back to school.
8: I'm going to call him before ne- next Tuesday. <laughs> Fix whatever I'm going to do next week. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. That was
15: very did. <laughs> <laughs>
8: And speaking of, of Tuesday,
1: we are going to have a, a session on, the, on Thursday, um in the morning, uh, so we're, and I'm bringing in some political analysts, so we'll sort of take inventory at that time. At that time. Um well look, it's about, it is 11.30 and we're going to uh, move on to, uh, what's, for those who have just joined, you know, this is one of our deep dives we're excited about because it, it's, uh, and I'll switch over to, uh, to that. Zach Nasser, are you in? Are you on? This is sort of your, we're co-hosting this, so hopefully you're joining soon, but I will, uh, as I transition, there, there's some other things that I, and I saw Chas, Walker, are you, are, are you on, uh, at the moment? Because I wanted to point something out. Chas, are you there?
16: I, I am here, Mark. I'm in the car.
1: Yeah, you may not be able to see this, but I, um I wanted to show a picture of, of you, uh, I, although it doesn't seem to sh- want to show up, because we're also going to do it, an Africa focus, and you had several comments on, uh, ranging from Morocco and otherwise, so let's, we'll talk about that next. So I'm going to switch over to the philanthropy deck, and, uh, buy some time for, for Nat, for Zach until he joins, Um Zach Nasser I met in Dubai uh, on the world tour um, remember in, in the Saint Regis, and since then we've been in, in uh, contact talking about about deals and uh, about impact and and you know he's been in, in sync with our our vision because we want to you know as you can see here the the family offices look for seven things, not just you know good you know good deals, capital for their deals, talent. Short term, long term for their portfolio or advisors, great global networks, local networks, the crystal balls, uh, interesting experiences. And then this last grouping, we've always had next gen and impact, but really everyone's got these passion projects. You know, alumni networking was my passion project that led, led to this. And then, you know, that fits into all these industries and interests as well as, as we connect into these Alumni and companies, you know, companies have, uh, philanthropies and obviously schools themselves in a way are phila- effectively philanthropies. I just read, uh, today's LinkedIn, $120 billion hit on the education system. So, you know, where are we going to make up that gap? Uh, and then as part of this, I, I'll throw into the, into the chat, it's pretty easy to take this survey uh, you know, what, this is what we'd like to do is just to know what your interests are so that we can help collaborate across those interests. Just gonna throw it into the chat while we, we're here. And, you know, we're, we're, we're excited that we have, um, with the app, uh, that we also are now being able to track people's philanthropic interests. So, with that said, I'd like to, to turn to you, Zach. I'm just seeing if you're on. There you are. I see you, but I don't. Uh, see.
17: Yes, Never mind.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Um, so uh, I'd like to uh, let you take it from here, and uh, I'm just going to throw this on the screen. And I don't know if we've got Mauricio's picture up there yet, but he's a, a new edition, or an old, an old edition that's come back uh, when we had our impact event in, the, in March, um, and he'll tell us about the Amazon for us and his initiatives there. Over to you, Zach.
17: Yes, uh, thanks for the intro, Mark. Um, Hi everyone, thank you for attending. Uh, Yes, as Mark was mentioning, uh, we had a last minute uh, change. Uh, Rob uh, couldn't make it, so we're gonna have uh, Maurizio Tota speak. Uh, He's uh, he's an expert in environment, he's done a lot of amazing projects in uh, Amazon and uh, renewable energy as well. So today we are going to cover, let me open my video. Uh, We're going to cover different areas. Uh, We're going to have four speakers. First we're going to start with uh, uh, Mamadou, uh, who's right now at Visa, but he's had a lot of experiences uh, in Africa. So he's going to share about how to be more scientific with philanthropy, to take more risks, and also about uh, lessons learned while working with the Rockefeller Foundation, so lessons that could be applied in uh, your family office or foundation. Um, then after that, we're going to have uh, Maurizio speak. Uh, I guess he's going to talk about his work in the Amazon and his method of uh, conserving the Amazon or managing managing forests in a sustainable way uh, while uh, doing more with it as well. Uh, then we're going to have Nicole speak about uh, the rights for amputees and the uh, rights for physical activity and how to be, how uh, her experience was as an athlete, an amputee athlete. Um, uh, she's based out of Seattle, so it could be uh, related to US policies and whatnot. And then finally we have uh, Charles, um, uh, who's going to speak about uh, education. Um, uh, Charles has had a lot of experience in education. He was with Teach for America. You've probably heard of it before is a nationwide program. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's an intro for the, for the speakers. And uh, this is our first event within philanthropy. The, the goal is to have a sampling of different topics covered uh, so that if you're interested in education, you get to, uh, to hear about different areas as well. Uh, and then there, there probably will be deep dives, like there's an education deep dive in, in December, for example, um, that Sarah's working on, others are working on. Uh, so this is just meant to be a sampler. And uh, like Mark mentioned, if you could mention, uh, fill the survey so that we know what you're interested in, what uh, organization foundations you're connected to, so that we, we could uh, bring people speak in, in future events about different topic areas uh, and encourage more collaboration within philanthropy. Um, so that's it for the intro. We could uh, jump right to it. So. Uh, with mamadou uh, he's uh, online right now mamadou can you hear me okay
6: uh
18: yes zach i can i can hear you thank you
17: uh, hi uh welcome to the to the call um and yeah we could just get started then uh his video is uh yeah showing now so you could see mamadou um, mamadou has had uh, a lot of experiences in the past uh uh, it's a pretty accomplished career, so I'm excited to hear what he has uh, uh, in tune for us. Uh, so, yeah, just over to you, Mamadou. I'll let you get.
18: All right. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Zach, and uh, uh, greetings to everybody uh, on the call. So I'm very excited uh, to to join today and just share a few insights uh, on my uh, experience uh working and promoting uh uh philanthropy. Uh, Zach asked me uh, to share insights from my previous work uh with the Rockefeller Foundation uh in Africa and uh, uh how actually uh philanthropy can play uh a pioneering role uh actually in addressing big societal challenges uh that we uh, face as society, and uh, how we can do that at scale uh, in a sustainable and transformative way. So uh, my experience in philanthropy are twofold, right? Uh, in my career, I have uh, uh, worked with uh, the United States African Development uh, Foundation uh, in Senegal, uh, the country I'm from and USADF really uh, supports uh, uh, grassroots organizations uh, uh, it is part of the us government's uh, what we could call uh, decentralized um actually corporation uh, uh, which uh, provides seed capital uh, to uh, groups uh, from a vulnerable uh, uh, background actually to uh, start fund uh, undertaking or entrepreneurship ideas uh, to uh, learn skills, uh, put their skills at work, and uh, to uh, develop uh, their activities in order to improve their their life. The second is actually I have, over the past uh, six years, uh, uh, been leading the Rockefeller Foundation's work in, uh, in Africa as a managing director, and lastly, uh, I serve as a, an advisor uh, on the, uh, a member in the on the advisory board of the uh, Center for African uh, Philanthropy and Social Change at the University of Witwatersrand. So, um, a couple of things I, I wanted to really share from that is uh today uh the these big challenges that we are talking about we, we, we face are really big challenges that uh are that are very big for any individual uh, organization uh, hence uh, uh partnerships and multi stakeholder partnerships are a great way uh, to address uh, those challenges whether we are talking about uh, uh inequality or we are talking about youth employment, or we are talking about uh, uh, health, access to health, and and uh, or to jobs, or what have you. But in all of this, uh, every uh, entity has a, an important role to play. Whether it is government with policy, whether it is financial institutions uh, to provide uh, financial services, etc. Uh, corporates play a big role. Uh, because uh, uh, in all of these experiences, one of the things that I've seen uh, is that uh, philanthropic organizations, whether these are charities and others, can oftentimes support very good work that really are transformative of people's lives. But one of the big challenges we encounter in the field are uh, first, um, the scalability of these programmes. How do you get them uh, to really touch a wide uh, uh, population and uh, not just a small a small group uh, uh, and be transformative for them? The second type of challenge I have seen is uh, mostly it's uh, the sustainability of actions, because oftentimes these group programmes actually work. As long as uh, the funding is being extended, and uh, after that, if you come back a couple of years later, uh, most of the part you would re- you wouldn't uh, see uh, these uh, projects that have been uh, funded actually still continue to exist or exist or grow in the way that has been expected. So, one of the things. Uh, This is why actually uh, private sector has a big role, but oftentimes also uh, bringing solutions or embracing uh, these new transformative ideas is a high risk. It is a high risk uh, for private sector uh, because uh, obviously uh, it's uh, a bit difficult for them to invest in risky ideas, uh, extremely risky ideas. Uh, because they are accountable for their quarterly returns. It is also difficult for government to undertake them, uh, because there is a heavy burden on government, a lot of demand, a lot of competing priorities, and, uh, obviously governments are oftentimes also worried with the next election and uh, how citizens react to things. So basically that limits their ability Uh, really to invest in innovative ideas uh, and take that risk. And this is where actually philanthropy uh, plays a unique role, because philanthropic organizations, by definition, actually can work with anybody. Uh, They don't have the pressure of uh, quarterly returns. Uh, They don't have the political pressure around uh, elections or, or so. Uh, but, of course, they should be also accountable and ask a question for the ROI of every dollar they can invest. But this position them in a unique, uh, unique, uh, help them be positioned in a unique role of really providing that enabling that capital, that risk capital uh, that actually uh, spurs innovation uh, test the innovation and develop uh, proof points or uh, what we call uh, 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 develop the business case for government to come in and scale or private sector to take it as a uh, market based solution and 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 scale it uh, uh, um, and, and take it to scale and uh, make it also uh, sustainable so so what i just want to why I'm talking about this is just to say for uh, because I understand there are in the audience uh, investors, uh, also uh, people who are in family foundations, is just to say that uh, actually philanthropy can have the power of being the, the, the oil uh, that actually makes the wheel of progress uh, run uh, smoothly by injecting. Uh, risk capital and uh, uh and enabling others to come behind the second thing i want to uh, re- want to say is uh, well, let me put one example around that of what that we talked uh, one of the examples is how do you unlock uh, more capital for development programs uh, and one of these ideas were actually how do you um, mobilize uh, private capital uh to actually uh buy matured uh, investment from development uh, uh, dfis development finance institutions as we know those uh, development finance institutions uh, actually invest in uh, trans the social trans- economic and social transformation projects uh with low interest long term capital uh, uh and they can only fund as many because these come to maturity oftentimes much earlier, but the capital is already locked, uh, which actually limits their ability to fund new projects. And uh, one of the things that uh, we've done with uh, uh, Rockefeller Foundation is actually looking at how then when a project uh, by a TFI uh, is actually being successful but remains many years uh, for its uh, end or maturity, then how do you take that and uh, uh, mobilize our private capital to take up this project? And that allows to infuse uh, fresh capital to the DFI and allow it to be able to undertake new investment in others. So um, those are really approaches that actually unlocks capital to, to be able to do more. Uh, the other one I want to talk about is really the power of partnership. I think that this is no, a no-brainer for many of you, but how do you do it in a purpose way? Uh, I think that really having these uh, multi-stakeholder uh, platforms are extremely, extremely powerful. One of the examples uh, I want to bring today is really uh, the Partnership for Inclusive Agricultural Transformation in Africa. Because we know in Africa, agriculture is very important. Uh, in most of the countries, more than half the population live of agriculture. It's smallholder farmers uh, that farm on average one hectare uh, for per year on a family and really uh, makes them very, very vulnerable. So for a long time, It has mobilized a lot of investment uh, but uh, not helping really always people cross or farmers cross the poverty line, their social mobility. So one of the reasons is also the perception of risk in the sector, but also the fact that interventions are not coming together. And uh, the Partnership for Inclusive Agricultural Transformation for the first time brought a number of major uh, agriculture donors to come together and uh, leverage each other, put together their financing uh, 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 to achieve the power uh, of influence investment capital that would allow them really to embark on a systems change in agriculture uh, with the goal of, uh, for instance, uh, in this particular case, touching 13 billion smallholder farmers, uh, farm households in 11 African countries. And uh, this was a partnership between the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, the Gates Foundation, uh, and uh, USAID, DFID, and the Alliance for Green Revolution in, in, in Africa. This allowed really to mobilize a, 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 a sizable amount of money and uh, but more importantly, to really play, uh, use the strengths of each of these organizations, uh, the power of their brands, but also their influence and expertise uh, towards a common ambitious goal uh, to 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 actually do that. So today, uh, uh, you know, Piata is uh, really having a huge impact in uh, many countries. Uh, uh, working to transform the smallholder farmers into entrepreneurs. Uh, so could any of these organizations do it alone? Probably. Uh, would it be at this scale? Probably. Would it be as fast? Maybe. Uh, uh, but I think that really coming together uh, uh, really raise the issue uh, to many stakeholders, to governments but actually it brought really leveraged the total strengths of all the organizations and today is having a real impact on the, on the continent. So those are really more two more uh, key points I thought that I will talk about today uh, and uh, uh, just uh, be available for happy to respond to, to questions and thoughts awesome. uh, around this. Thank you, Zachy.
17: Thank you, Mamadou. Thank you for all the the insights. Um, so, yeah, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask related to these topics?
13: I actually have a question. This is Sarah. I do work in Africa, and I'm curious to know what metrics you use to identify success.
18: Okay. Uh, in uh, in uh, in. Uh, Depends, really. But uh, you know, every project depends, uh, or this initiative depends on uh, what uh, are the changes that uh, you set. You are set to to actually achieve. Uh, so, if you take Piata, the one I have talked about, first of all, uh, I've talked about the goals. Uh, one is the number of farmers reach where. And, but it's not about reaching them. It is actually supporting them to transform their work and transform their lives uh, by adopting new technologies and how the adoption of the technologies and having access to resources that they didn't have before, uh, how and how all of that have actually impacted uh, their trade or, or their farms. Uh, you can measure really by the level of adoption of technology, the impact of technology on yields, uh, the impact of yields on income, uh, and, uh, the impact of income on, uh, the farm in more investment in the family well-being. So, uh, there are so many, uh, 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 uh indicators for success measurement, but they always actually, I think, uh, should be human centric because the change is really, uh, you are looking for, is really changing uh, uh, the life of your beneficiary uh, for, for better outcomes.
13: Thank
17: so, you.
18: Yeah. yeah, thank you.
14: Uh, hi, Mama. Awesome. The, okay. uh, just uh, a quick, quick thought. This yep. is okay. Rob here. The, um, you mentioned DFIs, and I recall the German DFI, uh, DEG, was very active. In things like solar in Africa and other renewables, um, has that uh, has that played out consistent? And I guess the big home run in this was uh, Celltel, as I recall, years back, where there was the, the private equity transaction and the movement towards wireless and then even payment uh, uh, payment processing. Could you speak just a little bit about the um, um, you know sort of the returns to the DFIs and the, uh, the patience level or that type of uh, re-upping?
18: Yeah, no, uh, I can make a brief mention on that, not specifically on that, but for instance, if you take uh, energy in Africa, and this is something that we've worked on as well, uh, the big challenge is that you have 600 million people not having access to, to energy. The biggest challenge uh, being actually the cost of uh, uh, distributing through the grid and sometimes also population density is a big challenge because the cost of the grid is so high for to to bring the electricity to to fewer to small villages and all of that although it is a right to access energy but also sometimes the economics don't work so basically what uh, some of the DFIs have done working with philanthropic organizations, namely the Rockefeller Foundation and others, and I will talk about the African, Development, uh, Founda- the African Development Bank, is looking at alternative approaches where the foundation invested in testing what was called uh, decentralized uh, uh, power, uh, working on developing mini-grids, uh, that actually can be developed with a small investment, such as like 150 thousand dollars. You develop uh, a scheme that can distribute power for for productive use to to villages uh, that are far away from the grid, and uh, in a radius of two kilometers, for instance, and give them reliable power. And but today. Uh, Uh, the the model was still not economically sustainable because of the cost of uh, inputs and all of that. So uh, supporting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the model of doing that actually really, really uh, helped reduce the cost and make the business case uh, improve. Second, what the DFIs did to do that was also there was no really funding for mini-grids on the market. It was seeding the decentralized energy access fund which actually allows to invest into startups that are looking at uh, this uh, uh, uh new uh approaches to uh distributed uh distributed access to to to, to energy I, either through mini grids or uh solar home systems uh to, mm-hmm. to help them block and cover more people okay.
1: Rob, I suggest okay. you, thank you you'd have a chance to speak uh, directly with Ramdou later if you'd like and in the, in, in the and I just threw on the screen I'll, I'll back to you zach in a second just we do plan to have an africa based uh deep dive the topic of you know just for profit and non profit so, so welcome you uh that one as well so back back to you uh Zach
18: thank you.
17: Okay, awesome. Thank you a lot, uh, Mamadou, for all the insights and the answers. Um, we're gonna move on to uh, Maurizio Tota um, so that you could tell us a bit about uh, Amazon work. Let's see. Can you hear us, Maurizio? Maurizio. I'm muting, sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's always
4: awesome. the same problem.
17: <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome Maurizio. Wow. Um, okay, awesome. Then I'll should... hand it off to you.
1: Yeah, Maurizio. Last I saw you, you had a COVID beard on, but now you're uh, clean shaven. Uh,
4: now, now I'm out of I'm out of quarantine. Uh, thank goodness. So, uh, Mark, thank you for having me. Uh, the whole thing uh, is a bit improvised. I hope the presentation will be good enough. And I had to um, sort of slim it down from the usual half an hour that I'm talking about this topic but um i hope uh, you like uh, or you find interesting uh, what you see so um Let me go can you go that first one slide please yep. because this is the second slide yes exactly so um what you see here uh is a just a small sample on 1000 square kilometers of what happened all over the amazon in the last 40 years so in total, about 800,000 square kilometers of mostly privately owned forests have been legally destroyed and burned down. So this mainly happens for financial reasons. Many Brazils still see this as a way to provide desperately needed jobs and income to people. But as these forests are being destroyed for money, uh, we thought the safest way to protect them is to show that it's possible to make more money by keeping the forests alive. So how do we get support for this alternative approach from people and politicians alike? By creating employment and income for the local population. So Mamadou was saying it is very important that these um, uh, large scale developments are actually sustainable. And the best way to make them sustainable is to make them financially sustainable. So you can see from the second slide Uh, a forest can actually be protected by sustainable forestry. So uh, what does forestry mean? Uh, The amount of tree harvesting is adapted to the growth of the forest and the amount of CO2 permanently stored remains the same on average. So um, in short, we are cutting trees to protect the forest. As absurd, that might seem, but this is the most efficient way of doing it. Because in an integrated system operation like this one, the biggest possible positive impact to all parties involved is a win for the forest because it's protected in the long term, a win for the climate because it's drawing down and keeping CO2 sequestered, and a win for the people by creating durable employment, and Last but not least, a win for the investor with a continuous initial return of three to 4% and a total IRR of more than 15% after 20 years. So um, as you see in my bio, I am a, um, a, pa- a passionate impact investor and entrepreneur now, but um, for the last uh, 34 years, I've been specialized in large scale projects. And so in the last 10 years, I've been applying this experience to impact investing. So um, this is something that works well. And I can compare the two because actually a few years ago in 2015, I bought what I thought was a large piece of land of 1,500 hectares uh, in acres. That should be something like uh, close to 4,000 acres now three thousand something acres. And uh, so I I was making some comparisons between um, how efficient as an impact investment uh, the construction of a renewable energy solar power plant versus the protection and conservation of the Amazon forest is. And um, in order to be able to compare the two, I said, okay, for every $1 million invested, what are the effects? So in the Amazon, for $1 million invested, we can purchase enough forest that uh, contains and keeps stored 1 million tons of CO2. That's quite a, um, a sizable amount. This forest will additionally extract about 9,000 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year, which are then stored in the wood that that will be produced with what is harvested from the forest. And it will also prevent the emissions from cows grazing on that land from methane, which is equivalent to 80,000 tons per year. So over a period of 30 years, for every $1 million invested, you have about 3.6 million tons of CO2 not emitted. So this is a huge climate mitigation effect for a relatively small amount of money. And in order to see how efficient this is, if you invest or for every million dollar invested in the solar power plant, which is a very efficient one uh, on my land in Portugal, uh, so the same amount of money only saves about 18,000 tons of CO2 over a period of 30 years. So this climate mitigation effect, just by using and protecting nature is much more efficient than using technology. Even if I'm an engineer, I have to admit that. So the climate mitigation investment in forestry is about 200 times more efficient for the same amount of money invested. So, if we give nature the space to produce in a natural way, that's the most efficient way of doing it. And an investor can make double digit returns by uh, doing this. So this confirms that um, although many people in the impact investment space or in the philanthropy space want to one would like to do good and to do the right things, I think it's even more important to do the right things in the most efficient way possible because any limited amount of money will go the farthest. So um, this idea of protecting the Amazon forest on a large scale is not only an idea, is not only theory, but we're already doing it and it's already profitable. Uh, The problem is the Amazon is so huge that even with the amount of money that we invested, we're just protecting a small part of the Amazon. So I would be extremely happy if we found a few other investors and actually we can find a lot of them because the Amazon is so big and you can actually purchase a lot of private land and transform it in this way to be protected in the long term. And you may add, Uh, Many people usually ask me, well, but isn't it better to leave the forest alone? Well, uh, the problem is that the forest left alone is practically carbon neutral. So you avoid emitting all that forest that goes up in smoke uh, if it's burned down to make space for cattle. But you actually don't draw down any carbon like in a managed forest. And especially Uh, This is true because you will not get the politicians, you will not get the local population to go along with it. They say, hey, we need to make a living. We need to make money. We need to survive. So only if you can produce um, uh, wealth and income by using the forest in a sustainable way, you actually have a chance of protecting it in the long term. So... um, I think um, you really have to see all the moving pieces Mm -hmm. and once you know everything, uh, then you have a chance of really making a difference by finding a sustainable solution that can be sustainable in the long term because you have the backing of the local population, otherwise you don't
1: stand a chance. Mauricio, can you skip context? What's the size of the land that you own now? And I think you had said at an earlier meeting that it's well. Much uh, we
4: than I-, um, I use the term control because we own outright um, a certain amount of land, but we control about 1.1 million hectares either by owning it outright, outright um, uh, with. Um, uh, uh, the deeds and everything or by having contracts uh, by which we control that land so um, uh, that's quite already so 1.1 million hectares that's um, 2.7 million acres and uh, that's about the size of a quarter of switzerland so that's already a certain amount of money but uh, uh, amount of land and amount of money invested But unfortunately it's just a quarter of a percent of the size of the Amazon itself because it's so enormously huge. And so we can accommodate any amount of investment uh, to go on with us and you get already double digit returns without considering any future carbon credits which we haven't tapped uh, yet. So, um, and we get all that biodiversity protection for free, so to say, because the forest is protected and still has this enormous amount of different plants and animals that live in there.
17: Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, uh, Maurizio. So uh, to sum it up, it's the same um, uh, nutshell I got previously, which is this is a new way to be sustainable. It's more cost-effective than the more popular ways people know about, like uh, uh, solar energy, for example. Um, and it's actually better than leaving the forest, uh, to its own, right? So, um, maybe for the benefit of time, we'll go to Nicole for, as the next speaker. And then at, uh, at half of the hour, we'll have breakouts. So if you guys have questions for Mariti, we could take them then in the breakout around sustainability. Uh, Thank Nicole, you very much. Over to you. Uh, Nicole also has some slides, uh, added.
19: Great. Thanks so much, Zach. Do you have uh, my slides, or would you like me to share them?
1: Um, Let me have them. I've got them. I was just letting people see your bio. for the. Okay,
19: great. Thank you guys so much uh, for having me. My name is Nicole Verkailen. I'm based out of the Pacific Northwest here in Seattle, uh, Washington. And today I'm going to be discussing uh, a nonprofit that I founded, a 501c3 nonprofit called Forest Stump. And once we get the slides up here, I'll kind of take you guys on a little bit of a journey on my own personal background and what kind of um, brought me to forming Forestump in the first place. And as a nonprofit, uh, Forestump operates at the intersection of disability rights, uh, healthcare, and sport. Um, so if you click to the next slide, so that was a picture of me. You can see that I have a prosthesis. Um, I lost my leg to bone cancer when I was 10 years old. I was diagnosed with a rare form of osteogenic sarcoma and luckily I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up just outside of uh, Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is and I uh, was fortunate enough to have my care done at the Mayo Clinic. Um, but despite that, I mean I you know I thank the Mayo Clinic for saving my life from cancer, but what really was an interesting transition was into that life of now having a disability and having to use a prosthesis. So if you click to the next slide, basically growing up, I was only provided one prosthesis to do everything and uh, it would change out, you know, every three to five years as I would start to grow. But this one prosthesis uh, was really just built for walking, light jogging, And as an active 10-year-old kid, you know, I wanted to do much more than just walk. I wanted to play with my friends. I wanted to run. I wanted to be the athlete that I'd always been up until that point, you know, playing soccer, playing softball, you know, no matter what it was, I didn't want to have any limitations. But what I found growing up is that this one prosthesis would just break down constantly. I was constantly breaking the foot. Um, I was constantly having to get that replaced. I was having to sit on the sidelines. Uh, If you click to the next slide. And what my family and I were coming up against was just uh, denial after denial from my insurance company. Basically, we tried to get me access to a waterproof prosthesis so that I could go in the water, play with my friends. Uh, and that was denied, saying that that's a convenience item to have access to a prosthesis that's waterproof. Uh, we also tried to get me access to what you've probably seen, a running blade. Uh, or an, a prosthesis that would allow me to run and do sports. And that was also denied con- and considered to be not medically necessary. Um, a third type, which I haven't necessarily had the challenge, but others have, is having access to something that might allow you to change your heel height, which is not just so that you can wear high heel shoes. It's actually very important. So any shoe that you change into, there's uh, different socket pressures that end up happening in your prosthesis that's also denied and is considered to be a vanity item. And so even to this day, uh, you know, 18 plus years later, these policies are still in place where insurance can deny access to these types of devices, saying that, you know, having something that's waterproof is a convenience, having something that allows you to be physically active is not medically necessary, and all, a host of other, you know, denials that come about. And so if you click to the next slide, you know, through this time, I really started to to wonder, you know, what is it really that makes me disabled? Is it the fact that I'm missing my leg, or is it these outdated insurance policies that deny me access to an active life? You know, I see people out there in the media who have access to things like these running blades who are out there accomplishing some incredible goals going on to the Paralympics. But, you know, I was starting to wonder, you know, why can't I have access to something like this? And I was going through the process at that point of running my first half marathon. And, uh, this was, you know, a super cool goal of mine. I was, you know, doing it with my friends and I just kept every step forward was two steps back. My prosthesis was constantly breaking. I was doing this all on just a walking leg. I ended up in physical therapy twice a week with a sacral torsion, uh, pelvic asymmetry, basically back pain that I had basically run my pelvis, uh, out of alignment. You know, just waking up in the morning, I would try to put my socks on, I'd be in tears. And, you know, I was really pushing through that pain to try and, you know, do what I wanted to do and to be active and to be healthy. And so I ended up going to my prosthetist and said, you know, hey, this isn't working. Let's see what if we can make a new type of prosthesis that will be covered by my insurance and allow me to be active. And so I went through the course of 26 appointments over the course of the year, each appointment two to four hours long. And after all of that, I ended up with the exact same prosthesis that I've had for the past five years. And that to me was just so incredibly um, frustrating. And that was really what was debilitating me was not the fact that I was missing my leg, but that I just couldn't get access to what I needed to be a healthy person. And so click to the next slide. I decided I wanted to do something about that. And at that point, I was working in the sustainability environmental space um, doing uh, business development, marketing, fundraising. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to shift gears. I want to be a voice for change. I want to be an advocate for the disability community. And, you know, what can I do to help? And so that's where I decided to do uh, a 1500 mile triathlon down the West Coast and ended up calling that Forest stump. So if you click to the next slide. I uh, quit my job, started up an Instagram account, you know, a very millennial approach to, uh, you know, trying to make change on this. And what I really wanted to show over the course of this 1,500 mile two-month journey where I'd be swimming, biking, and running day after day was that, you know, I had the will, I had the endurance, I had the power, you know, within me to make it those 1,500 miles. But really the question was whether or not my only prosthesis, my insurance-mandated prosthesis, would be able to survive that journey. So if you click to the next slide. Um, so here's kind of a picture of me jumping off the ferry into uh, the bay, right underneath the Golden Gate Bridge there, swimming in the ocean. And so what we ended up doing is creating a film from that 1,500-mile uh, journey. It's called 1,500 Miles. Uh, it's an award-winning documentary short film. Uh, It's been in 12-plus film festivals, and you can actually find that and watch it on our website, uh, forestthump.org, if you're so inclined. Uh, It's an incredible film of not only the journey that we took, but also, you know, the real issue at hand in terms of not being able to access, you know, what I needed to be able to uh, be active and to live the life that I wanted. And I don't want to give away the ending, but the ending is somewhat an important piece in the fact that I came in contact with an organization called the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And to my surprise, they ended up uh, donating and giving me my very first running blade. And so since then, my life has completely altered and changed by having access to that technology. You know, it's something that I'd seen in the media, but I'd never really experienced it for myself to really know what that is capable of. But I can tell you, you know, going through that process, getting that running blade made and then putting it on for the first time, it was just absolutely incredible, life-changing. You know, putting that prosthesis on, it really felt like I had my leg back. And it immediately shaved off two minutes per mile on my running time, which is, for any of you runners out there, you know how incredible that is to have that significant of a change. And that's kind of how much harder my uh, my the right side of my body was working, just overcompensating for the fact that, that my walking prosthesis was not providing any return whatsoever. So if you click to the next slide, after receiving that, um, and then there's going to be a a series of pictures here, um, after receiving that Running Blade, it really opened up a lot of doors for me um, and just a lot of opportunities. I ended up going to Washington, D.C., ended up spending and living there for 10 weeks, doing a healthcare uh, policy fellowship. Being able to meet with uh, members of Congress, uh, one of my uh, great friends and idols, uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth, who is an incredible disability uh, champion from the disability community. I ended up uh, partnering with a group of amputees and climbing Cotopaxi in Ecuador, a 19,000 plus foot volcano, which I never in a million years thought I'd be able to do. And I also ended up going and training with Team USA and winning the national championships uh, for paratriathlon. So just an incredible amount of opportunities and experiences that I was opened up to just by gaining access to this technology and being able to be healthier and more independent. And uh, throughout that process, what I realized was, you know, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this. You know, I'm not the only amputee. I'm not the only individual with a disability who's coming up against these incredible hurdles just to live out their daily life. And so what I wanted to do was really to figure out how I can position for a stump uh, to make the most impact. And so if you go to the next slide, I realized that, you know, no amputee, no individual with a disability should have to go the length that I did. No one should have to do a 1,500-mile triathlon to prove that they're worthy of access to the assistive technology that they need to just live their life. And so what I found, you know, within you know going to DC, working with members of Congress, understanding the policy landscape at this point in time, and all the nonprofits that are out there, is that there's really not a convener of all of these, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of nonprofits that are out there that are on the ground level raising money to provide access and really charity to individuals with disabilities. And so what forced them does and as an advocacy organization comes at the intersection of charity and justice, and saying that you know there's a root level issue here. This is needed for systems level change, that uh, in within the disability community within healthcare that needs to happen, and kind of what Mamadou was saying earlier in terms of these you know multi stakeholder partnerships. That's something that Forestump is working on in terms of building a coalition and, and an aligned action network to bring all of these organizations together to say, hey, you know, we're all separately working on the same issue. And what that really is, is about this core level justice issue of not being able to access for the disability community, the right to physical activity. So if you click to the next slide... And what I want to get across here is, you know, it's not just about fancy technology in terms of a running blade or a sports wheelchair that has been really hyped up in the media and made to seem really bionic and a lot more advanced than what it really is. You know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, hey, can I see your leg? I mean, it looks so bionic. And if I look at them like this thing is so basic. I mean, uh, you know, when I sweat, it falls off. My ankle doesn't move whatsoever. I mean, it's extremely heavy. There's a long way for the technology to go before it really reaches that level of being bionic. And so what this really is about is about access to physical activity. And the fact that there's this lack of access is really a health disparity for the disability community. And I'm gonna kind of take you through a series of just stats in terms of um, helping to understand the scale of this health disparity and what's really going on here. And these are all pictures of individuals I've met over the past few years, you know, within the disability community who are facing the exact same issue that I am. So if you click to the next slide, I mean, in terms of the numbers here, you know, many of you may not even know someone with a disability, Um, but there's 21 million people just within the United States who are living with a physical disability who are facing this challenge on a day-to-day basis. So this is a widespread issue that needs to be addressed. This isn't just myself. I mean, this is millions upon millions of people. Um, and what I didn't mention earlier in terms of the cost of prosthetics or wheelchairs or orthotics is that it's extremely expensive and prohibitively expensive when not covered by insurance. So for myself, you know, a standard below knee prosthesis costs around $15,000. A running prosthesis can be anywhere between ten dollars to $25,000, depending on your level of amputation. And then you look at wheelchairs that can be anywhere between two to six thousand dollars, depending on what type of sports wheelchair it is. And even high activity orthotics can be anywhere between three to ten thousand dollars. So this is very expensive and out of reach for someone who's not able to have their insurance cover this. And it's really a discriminatory economic burden that this community is taking on in the sense that insurance companies are very excited to sponsor 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, really put their money to say that you know, running is, is good for you, we want everyone to get involved, we're going to sponsor this, you know, marathon, but yet for their policyholders who have a disability, they're not going to cover that. Also, if you look at things like ACL surgeries, which is one of the most common knee injuries in the country, you tear your ACL, you want to get back up and running, your insurance will cover that. That's, a, that's between a twenty dollars to $50,000 uh, surgery. So I mean we're looking at the same level of cost, and there are millions of those that happen every year, and will cost over 500 million dollars for the the healthcare system. Um, mm-hmm. Am I running out of time?
17: Yes, uh, Nicole, thank you uh, yeah. for for all that you've shared. I'll uh, we need to segue to the last speaker, but I'll say for the breakout, uh, along with discussing uh, the adv- advocacy work you did with policy and whatnot, I think. People might be interested to hear about the different technologies currently available. Maybe something is investable. Uh, maybe sharing insights around those areas is uh, is good as well. Definitely. So, uh, thank you. And we are gonna switch to Charles.
12: Uh, are you... Yeah. Thanks. I, I'll I'll share my screen if that's okay. Um, uh, okay. Thanks yeah. so much. I'm sorry. Oh, go, for oh, it. Awesome, go ahead,
17: go ahead, yeah, you know, you did some updates, right, so use yours.
12: Yeah, yeah, thanks so much, Uh and thanks Mark and, and Zach for having me, I appreciate that. Nicole, it's nice to meet you, that was fantastic, and uh shout out to Minnesota, I'm from St. Paul, so uh we've got something in common. I'm going to share my screen real quick. Um, so, yeah, I'm Charles McDonald. I'm the founder and executive director of Community Engagement Partners. I'm going to get into that in, in, a, in a, just a moment. But there's a quick question that I have for you all to, to think about. You can even put your um, responses to this question in the chat box, if you would. But just uh, I challenge you to think back to, you know, maybe your earliest recollection um, when you were a kid and, uh, you know, you think about a family member or a teacher, um, what do they tell you was the purpose of of education? Um I was gonna just think about that uh, for a second. Um, and again, feel free to chat. I always I just think this is fascinating. I just I love hearing these these types of responses. And and maybe in the breakout we could talk a little bit about it. Um and I think about uh that um, that question a lot. Um, when I was a when I was a kid, you know, if you were to ask my mom what was Charles like when he was a kid? She would have said, oh, he was very inquisitive and he had a lot, he was very high energy. Um, and she used to tell me that uh, those two things would, would either get me in a lot of trouble or they'd get me into a place where I was, uh, um, I could, I could do a lot of really great things. Um, one, one thing in particular she used to tell me is that um, I would, uh, my inquisitive nature would, would do me well in college. And, um, and then she would go on these long diatribes about college, college this, college that. This is what the college is going to be like. College is so great. It's so wonderful. Um, she used to say this to my sister and, and my closest cousins, uh, so much so that we, we actually would uh, affectionately joke and call her, um, the professor. Um, the, the funny thing about that is that my mom actually never went to college. She didn't know much about college at all. Um, but she instilled this belief that we were, uh, we were destined to go. Um, and fast forward, I actually went to college, shock, surprise, um, along with, uh, my sister and my cousins. We all went to the University of Minnesota. I was a poli-sci major, still an inquisitive student. And I remember a professor in a poli-sci class saying something to me that stuck with me for, uh, ever since. And that was, um, when you see, uh, significant disparities across Different groups or different or disparities and outcomes across different groups. It is likely uh, a failure of political leadership and policy. And it just, this light bulb went off, and I thought about my experiences um, in college. I, I was my poli sci classes in and even on campus, I was one of the only students who looked like me, um, and, and I was, uh, uh, and I would constantly searching for, for students who, um, who graduated from, from my public school district. Um, and you know, this, this kind of, uh, this thought, um, uh, this, this question, it it, it triggered something in me, catalyzed something in me about, well, if that is true, if what this professor said is true, then the inverse can be true as well. Then, then if we are to, um, if we can affect policy and politics, for, um, more equitable outcomes, well then maybe we can transform the ways our systems work, in particular our education system. And I, I became passionate and, um, and, and fired up about that. It led me to, um, uh, to California to, to do statewide grassroots coalition work to, um, uh, to fundamentally change the, the, um, the student funding formula, um, in California. It led me to, um, to Boston, uh, in an organization called Education Pioneers where I was recruiting MBA students at MIT and, and, and Harvard and convincing them to put their finance and tech skills, um, to, uh, to, to the benefit of, of society in, in, in the education sector. And it led me to South Carolina to, to lead statewide policy work for Teach for America South Carolina and, um, and, and ensuring that um, state lawmakers were allocating millions of dollars to some of the poorest school districts in the country so that they could get access to diverse, talented leaders like Teach for America Corps members to teach in, in their small rural communities. And then um, and then it led me to, um, to a, an, an incredible fellowship opportunity with um, uh, some of the nation's uh, most impactful city-based funders who were focused on education systems change and really helping them think through um what would a what would a more community based a community driven approach to to transforming education systems look like um and then here I am now uh 2018 i was i was fortunate enough to launch community engagement partners and um you know this is this is a little bit about us i'm not going to read it for you but you can see it here but ultimately what we believe we are is uh, and what we do is we are a bridge between um uh, well-intentioned, um, aspirational funders who want to transform education systems and the intended beneficiaries of their work. And we believe that when you build powerful partnerships between those those two uh, groups, um, anything can happen. Um, I'm going to talk about this very briefly. I don't want to bore you all with this, but this is really you know, education by the numbers, um, as we can see here. A few things I'll just point out. We spend about 770 billion dollars in public education across local, state, and federal government, um, and uh, and then you can see some of these proficiency outcomes that 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 we're, we're, uh, we have across our public education system. It's a question I have for you all: is if you were running a business um, that um, that had a 770 billion dollar budget, but you were only getting to 30 to 40 percent of your goals annually. Uh, what would the likely outcome be um, for you and, 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 and your position? It's not a rhetorical question. I'd love to hear that in the chat, but, um, but just something to stew on for a second. And so why should we care? Well, there's a number of reasons why we should care um, about how, um, how our young people are faring in our public education system. Um, It has real implications. The quality of education has real implications on social and economic mobility. Um, We know that there's, a real strain on public services when we have a, a, an undereducated and uneducated uh, population. Um, critical thinking and cooperation are just such important skills um, um, and characteristics to have if you wanna have a, uh, a functional democracy um, we're, we're understanding fact from fiction and we're not engaging in harmful conflict. And then certainly civic engagement is so critical um, the higher education, the more likely you're going to be involved in a democratic process, in particular, the higher rates of, of, of voting. Um, and so this is an oversimplification of the past 20 years of public education reform. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'll spare you the dissertation, but, but a, there was a lot of energy and enthusiasm and focus um, over the last 20 years of folks who really wanted to see radical systems change um, uh, affecting policy and, and, and politics. And the 90s to the early aughts was really um, what we call the innovation phase, where we're seeing a lot of um, um, talented leaders who are opening up their their own kind of high-quality charter schools. We call them gap-busting or gap-closing schools. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot of in-district innovations happen. Uh, New York City comes to mind. Um, and then we're seeing these the emergence with alternative education pipelines like Teach for America. The second phase um, that we're kind of coming out of right now is this growth phase where we're saying, you know what, we, we, we know what works, um, or at least we have an inkling of an understanding of what works. We want to scale. Um, we're going to grow our talent pipelines. We're going to replicate high-quality schools, and we're going to do that with urgency and efficiency. Now we're in this phase, which is a little, it's, it's interesting. We, we call it kind of inclusive innovation. So we're learning the lessons from the past, you know, 15, 20-ish years and saying, look, um, there's a, there may be a different way to do this. Um, that can actually lead to much more sustainable outcomes. Um, and, and it can do less harm, um, uh, to communities because there's been some resistance and backlash and some, um, and, and, uh, quite honestly, some, some tension on the ground. Um, so what's worked? Well, I, I don't, I think another oversimplification, but when we think about what's worked at scale, at scale across cities, uh, during this kind of reform period, there's four things that we 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 can kind of uh look to. So uh, the first being that if we have really supportive policies that um that can really bust up in in many ways um the kind of uh antiquated um uh outdated way that we deliver education in communities um through um increased autonomy for educators and school leaders um uh, smaller central offices, um, so that folks can be focused on um, um, really steering and ensuring accountability um, of schools and, and school operators um, and educators, and ensuring that equity is met in, in terms of transportation and, and special education. Um, then it's going to really free up um, educators and school leaders uh, to do what their best, uh, uh, what they were designed to do, and that's meet the needs of our children and prepare them for the next step in life. Um the next thing is high quality schools. So incubating, scaling and replicating high quality autonomous schools um, has 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 really worked. We've seen those schools do really amazing things in low income communities and communities of color. Um and and also um holding schools accountable that are not um meeting uh, um uh, meeting proficiency and growth standards that that uh, we know are so important uh, to to further life outcomes for young people. Developing diverse talent pipelines, um, uh, to school leadership and into the classroom, um, also has worked. And then, um, at the school level, ensuring that, um, our curriculum is rigorous and it's relevant and that there's, um, there's assessments that, that are, um, are meaningful, um, are also some things that have worked. So where has this worked? We, we can, we can, and, and a lot of this stuff is debatable, but when we think about the numbers and what's, what's happened at, at, in terms of scale and that, at, at a systems level, um, some of the things that happened in New Orleans are, are quite remarkable. You see the graduation rate skyrocket, and college entries up by 24 point, points um, since uh, 2005, around around the time Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, and another city that that has completely transformed their education system for low-income students and students of color um, is Denver, um, and they've taken this approach to, to reform, and 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 they've seen some really remarkable things. Um, enrollment rates have gone up, and and so of uh, graduation rates. When you think about this type of reform in what we would call like mature reform cities, um, these are just some of the outcomes that I think are really positive. So you might be asking yourself, well, if you see all these these things and they look so great, why haven't we seen this at scale? Well, there's a number of things that we can point to um, in these early stages of reform that that have limited our uh, our impact to make more progress. Didn't paint a compelling enough vision. We did to, um, educators, families, and communities and not with them. We were very narrowly focused, rightfully so, on literacy and numeracy, but, um, failed to address social and emotional needs of students. And then last but not least, we didn't focus enough on bold innovations. We didn't focus enough on rural and suburban education and then thinking about the impact of poverty and what that what role that that plays on, um, on, on systems and, 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 and uh, school level education. Uh, I'll skip here. So, um, so t- taking all those lessons, um, this is where community engagement partners really comes in. And so what we do is we, um, this is our of change. And what we believe is that when we take aligned community partners and we center the values and the needs of those most impacted by educational inequity, and we take an ecosystem approach to systems change, we can dramatically transform the quality of education for all students. So everything I just talked about, about what works, but really making sure that we're doing that with our communities. And there's a, and there's a formula for doing that. There's a, there's best practice for doing that. Um, And, 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 and it's quite amazing how, how little um, over the last 20 years, we've invested in in what we would call uh, the demand side of educational equity. We've invested over 98% of our resources from a philanthropic standpoint in supply side, less than 2% in demand. Just think about that for a second. Um, so why is this approach important? I'm going to talk about that in a breakout, but I want to go go um, forward a little bit. But there's a lot of evidence, uh, research based around why this approach, this this uh, this engagement approach and centering values and needs of of stakeholders is so critical and so important. Um, again, no, number of research, uh, the research just keeps mounting. In particular, in the face of COVID-19 and, and the impact that that's had on parents and families and our most um, uh our most struggling school system um now more than ever is this time for us to really deeply engage and start educating around how we can transform systems um, uh, to really respond in this moment so this is how we do it our approach is pretty simple we advise um grass tops leaders and, and education funders uh, we convene networks of practitioners who um who really want to take a systems changed approach but do that in a community-centered way and then we create original tools and resources. We write about the work. We, um, we innovate, um, to make sure we're building a field. Here are some of our partners. Um, and this is probably where I'll stop, Zach, um, so that I can, I can make sure we get time in the breakout rooms, but this is a partner snapshot. So I'm based out of Columbus, Ohio, but my, my organization is national. Um, some of our biggest partners, um, that we work side by side with, um, I'll just highlight two of them. The first is the city fund. Uh, this is a new fund that was created by uh, Reed Hastings of Netflix and uh, John Arnold of um, Arnold, the Arnold Foundation, um, and their their role is to really focus on um, uh, investing uh, a considerable amount of money um, in uh, in city-based reform, which transform education systems in a similar approach to, um, to, to what we do, and, and we really advise them and, and focus and support them on um, on the engagement and advocacy side of the work. Um, and developing that next generation of leaders who are going to lead in a different way to, to enact change that's more sustainable. And, and then lastly is the Walton Family Foundation. Um, we, uh, we have a, um, an exciting, um, announcement that we're going to be making and I'll share a little bit more about it in the breakout, um, about a, um, an innovative approach that they're taking to, um, uh, to education systems change. And they've partnered with, uh, with my organization to help them uh do uh i suppose the kind of the r&d pilot of this approach um so, so super excited about about the work that we have ahead um and uh yeah okay. i would uh, awesome. love an opportunity to connect with folks in more.
17: okay thank you charles so um how we're going to move ahead we're going to have 5 minutes for q&a for uh, charles or for nicole and then we'll jump into breakouts for 15 minutes, just uh, the update to this agenda. So if uh, anyone have any questions.
1: So Zach, you notice that Charles is from Columbus or in Columbus and Nicole w- went to Ann Arbor. So <laughs> just saying.
13: I have a question for Charles. This is Sarah Drewridge. Um, Charles, do you ever work with appreciative inquiry summits for community engagement?
12: Uh, I don't, but I would love to get connected if you are opening a door for me. Um,
1: <laughs> you've just met the ultimate door opener connected. <laughs> uh,
13: we, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk.
12: Awesome. That's great.
1: Thoughts, questions, people? Quiet crowd. I think we're very inspiring from lots of directions. Um, Zach, Zach, I know that we wanted to do some, some breakouts, which we can physically or technically do. Uh, we tip, we typically then come back one more time as a, as a group. Um, so what I can do, well, maybe may you ask another question or so I can then initiate some breakouts. I'll, I'll just call it Nicole. Charles you know keep me you know um, uh Maurizio and uh is i i hope uh uh our first speaker
17: is he still a, still still on um, I had to do have to jump off, oh. you know, so we just have three yeah so education and uh with Nicole and with uh, Maurizio okay one moment. You know, one, one thing I can do
1: is do this very quick uh, and, and create breakout rooms where I can create three rooms uh, where you can move around. And, oh, I don't know if I set it up so you can move around. But um, in the interest of time, let's let's do that. If if uh, for some reason Charles um, uh, and Nicole or Maurizio, if you're in the same room, uh, come back. I'll move you. Uh, I think this is the fastest way to get going. Um, and then from there, if you want, if you're not in the room for the, the person you want, just come back to the main room. We'll we'll, we'll shift you around. And unless I got lucky and you have the ability. Okay. to move. Okay. Does that work? That way we we get moving. All right. So. Okay. That's good. And then we'll close them out. You know, like 15 minutes. This is just to get going, get to the initial questions. This is just a catalytic event. So. Um. See you back here soon.
16: that we've lots of stories of people that started working for us. that were desperate they couldn't find a job. So the uh, Let's say um, we can get the most bang for our bucks, if I may use that American expression, uh, because the land down there is so incredibly cheap, and there are quite a few dollars to go around. So whatever we do, uh, creating jobs and protecting the forest, we can actually do a lot of good with uh, very different amounts of stock. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's something that we see in the development space where it costs us twelve dollars for an unbelievable front-end developer when, uh, in a certain country, uh, when it would normally cost us one hundred and seventy-five dollars for that same person domestically. So I definitely understand. But anyway, I didn't want to hide the conversation. Hi, Chris. What? Hi, Mark. Hey, guys. Hi, Kevin. Mark Jarvis. A
7: hey. Yeah. And I think Marita, you know, just uh, it was a great presentation. Thank you. And you know, I,
0: I did a little bit of work uh, for something called Plastic Oceans, which is a UK-based thing. Um, obviously, the title gives it away what it's trying to do. And trying to actually raise money and getting people to buy in and um, you know provide, let's say, philanthropic support to it, it's incredibly difficult
1: and mark what's different about what Maurizio has is it's really a business with with a uh, yeah. with downside protection you know it's because you're buying actual assets um, you know and all and all the rest and and it's what and it, yes, we could bring it through the front door and try to raise money for you, Maurizio, but I'm also, there's also sort of this side door through philanthropy that might pique interest. And I'm we're trying to figure out ways to shine lights based on people's particular social development goals at their interests. You know, for MJ, maybe mental health, which is touching everything these days. Um, oh, or it could be from a geographic point. Um, or you know whether it's or it's climate change or the rest. And so we're just trying to figure out a way, ways to do things more systematically. You know, Mark Jarvis, you were ask, asking about, an effectively, shareholder rights type issues, but I think, I think there's there's ways that we can um, do more here. So we're, that's part of what we're trying to catalyze. Maybe we don't have to go into the specifics today. It's just well, maybe people know of other models. To go on the app as soon as you're now in charge of of my app. You're my, you're my, you're my community manager now, Mark. <laughs> uh, I, um, I'd i like to be, in a certain way, I'd like to do good, but I'd like to appeal to uh, any kind of investor.
4: So even the climate change deniers... Would say, who cares? I don't care if I can uh, sequester so and so many tons of carbon or a million tons of carbon. I say, okay, just care about the bottom line. You can have uncorrelated problems different terms. So, the positive thing about this is that it even can appeal both to the idealistic approach by saying, invest in this, you protect the forest. And you have money to protect even more forest later on, or just for the bid
12: Thank you so much. It was really great to meet you. She said she shared. Should I move Chris over here? Um, let's 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 keep it
1: moving. Um, should, should I move Chris over here by chance? I was in the room with her. Um, she's gonna like. She's gonna wonder like, where did I go? <laughs> Joe,
9: James, either of you wanna unmute uh, yourself and, and make an intro and share a little bit about why you're in? Here she is. <laughs> I was talking like, they were like Chris and I was like hey I don't really have a question but I I'm here
1: and I'm glad you are here and then I was zoomed out. I just zapped her over here. I just so, I just realized yeah. you're a connector of sorts, Sarah. Or, or, that's good with Sarah and Charles. Either, yeah, I feel like
9: I'm bookend between two people I love and respect and feel like so like, humbled to be in the middle of.
1: So and and I see Bill but Joe Joe I know is very passionate about these subjects but I don't see we must be offline um and thing is I'm I'm heading to Ohio uh my parents are in there's Joe I'm heading to Columbus area Chris today um to see my parents and I went to Michigan so I just saw the Columbus Michigan thing. In fact, Joe will make fun of me. He'll, he'll wonder if, if there's really a football team this year or something, but cause he's a Buckeye. Um, and then Jim Philip is like ever intellectually curious. I don't know what he thinks about your issues, but, um, Joe, Joe, you want to, you want to say something maybe? Contribute?
5: Sure. Uh, can you hear me?
1: Yep. I hear a dog too.
5: Um, I, I, uh, I work for the, we wildlife service for 20 years and uh, developed a couple of social marketing campaigns to empower people to improve their uh, relationship with the environment. And um, we're, you know, we're dealing with a lot of very complex environmental issues, may uh, not environmental issues, back in there. You know, because you have uh, obviously climate change is uh, redefining our, our worldview, but, you know, some of the, you talk about water, um, we tested the fish in the Potomac River. Eighty-five percent of the male bass have eggs. What's for 50 percent? Eighty-five percent of the male bass have eggs. That's crazy. And, and this is what we're doing. We're, we're using this water. I mean, it's that's unbelievable what we're doing to the environment. So, bottom line is, yeah, obviously education is a huge part of it. And you know, what I love to say her is uh, focused on you know real world issues, not not just reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, focused on the leadership. Focused on. Entrepreneurship, you know, focus on those those types of issues. Hopefully, we can make that happen. And, uh, you know, with with the uh, efforts to to deal with the systemic changes, in education, it's, it's going to be hard. There are a lot of people who are like, no, I did it. Why can't they do it too? I mean, it's incredible. So yeah. that's what I got. To say. Yeah, it's, it's funny you 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 say that because. Um, you know, we use the graph when
12: you know, we talk about systems change in particular to, to really get folks to focus on um, you know, the idea but it's not about uh, we say shorthand is um, uh, and, uh, I encourage you to keep, keep
10: doing what you're doing because I was, my question do you see a Big window or potential in a Biden administration if we have an election that has a change, and will, will there be more resources available in your estimate? Yeah,
9: definitely there will be. Uh, we're already in communication with some of the, the Biden team in terms of their disability uh, group, and I think there could be a huge opportunity for the disability community that has not really been present, unfortunately. Um, And especially
10: with uh, maybe a refocus and a new piece of legislation on Medicare, there could be something uh, that gets uh, looped up to that. Look, I think you presented it, but if I'm saying something you already said, forgive me, but I would encourage you to speak the language that some of these people use, which is return on investment.
5: Mm -hmm.
10: And that the ability to unlock the potential people like yourselves and others who need this boost, that they become much more productive workers, members of communities, contributors, there's tax revenues, there's money that saves when people are able to go out and become independent, and there's all kinds of negative externalities that I'm sure are employed. So some people are looking at return on investment for government programs, and I think you're Tools and your resources are helping people become independent and productive. And, um, so it just strikes me that it's going to continue to grow because of efforts of people like you. Definitely, I appreciate that. Um,
9: there's definitely research to support that in terms of access to sport and um, especially for the disability population being one of the highest um, unemployed minority groups.
10: Obesity.
9: Yeah, obesity, exactly. I appreciate
10: that. There's another member of our community, Rob Frankfurt, who is raising a venture fund called the Living Fund. And I can connect you. But Rob's thesis is funding programs and tools and information because he got involved in this because he became aware of what a chronic illness obesity creates. And so if you look up Living Living Fund, the Living Fund,
9: Mm-hmm. The kid experience. he's a good friend, and he's a member of this
1: team. Oh, awesome. Thank you for that. I would N- love to connect with Rob. Nicole, nice to meet you, and go blue. Um can, can I uh share my screen? I want to introduce you to somebody um yeah. that shares some of your passion. Um, he's a. I went to Denison as well, so this he's a Denison grad. If you see George Pierce on your screen. So he created, he, I I want to say he got really badly injured. He was a national triathlete um, on the U.S. team. And he by coming back, he invented this shoe, which is laceless. It's, it makes it really e- easy to put your shoes on for kids, for autistic people, for seniors. And it, it cut down his time. So it's also for so the, the professional athlete. So um, I, if nothing else, you're sort of in the same general area. He's up in Bend, um, right. yeah. and you know he's got all kinds of activity that I'm not really finding it right here. But really, really interesting guy. Um, yeah, right in the cereal. That's awesome. Obviously, it's it's not prosthetics, but it's uh, he he would probably you might have some 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 spiritual cousins at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is actually a FC, uh,
9: footwear manufacturer out of Boston called OOFOS who boosts and they design therapeutic um, slide flip flops and short fitting options for who want to stay active and secure and that need therapeutic reinforcements. I can you know deeply identify with this discussion as I have a younger sister who lives um, a disabled life and has had a long spectrum of at least two decades of physical um, and other challenges that are interconnected and you talk a lot about sport and athlete and I'm curious um, to even to your point um, Mark about the therapeutic sneakers which are easier to get on. Is this the type of approach which is being targeted towards different audiences, even such as you know, the aging population as well? Or are you focused on those who are athletically minded already? Because I'm thinking there's a lot of implications even with social and emotional um, progress in learning that are really hey, relate with discussions. You, you want to join a? a, a uh, to, um, we're doing breakouts.
20: Yeah, uh, maybe a Michigan room. It's not Michigan.
1: It's, it's about philanthropies. One philanthropy is about a Michigan woman actually who amp- 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 amputee athlete.
20: Yeah, I saw. I saw that.
1: You want to join that one?
20: Sure, sure. All right. Thanks. How are you doing?
1: Good, you? I'm,
20: I'm well, I'm well.
1: White books in the background. Is that your real background?
20: Yeah, it's a curtain. Okay. Really
9: How do I go Point, um, in terms of social-emotional connection and really providing a much broader access to assistive technologies and just in general the resources needed to be physically active. Tina, you want to... I think a lot of it comes the mindset also and in, mm-hmm. you know, even negotiating with various medical and health professionals on behalf of and advocating for my sister's care. Yeah. Um be complicated. And let, if there can be that um, that let, intervention educator who can provide the appropriate support, the um,
13: therapy would
9: let, be probably adopted earlier and better and um, help to avoid
13: a lot let, of
1: Leslie, can I just interrupt just for a second? In the Let's to, inter- to interrupt. I d- we're gonna sort of come back together before we lose everybody. And, and Tina wants to say something. And I'm also I'm looking at Rich. I'm um, thinking of a friend of ours. You know, Mike Ross. Uh, he got you know, he was living the life of Riley. Uh, sold a company, went to Colorado, was in the worst ski accident, and he invent. And he just he tried repairing his body. He had to, he had to create a machine that that provided both you know the the cold. Um, Compression and then the heat. And I don't know where, I think he's moved, he's now moving into industrial production, but it's another person that you might identify with, uh, Nicole Gautino. Go, go, go ahead. Another fellow Michigan alum.
9: Yeah,
20: Structure of all of those uh, prosthetics is—is it, is it regulatory, or, or is it—is it something else?
16: Just how that happens. And then you try if I there zero. No, I won't touch it. I, I, I won't touch any anything that that any. I won't touch any non-alcoholic beer, whiskey, rum, whatever, because that will be you know that that's something that is is too dangerous for me. Uh, but uh, brands like uh, Diageo that owns Kettle One and Johnny Walker and all these Ciroc, you name it, um, they've got Seedlip, uh, um, mm. and, uh, and different kombucha brands and, you know, that type of stuff. If it doesn't taste like whiskey, you know, and, and it, and it tastes like an actual mocktail, I'm yeah. all for it. But if, if someone's trying to sell me on a non-alcoholic whiskey, I, before you know it, I'm going to be drinking whiskey and, <laughs> and, and, and Heineken Zero Zero wanted to partner with us with, uh, I Heart Radio, Um, but it was just something that I just couldn't come to terms with, you know. It is, it is
0: one of the best tasting non-alcoholic beers. When I was young and, you know, driving home at the end of an evening, we'd have this house Haller stuff from Germany.
16: It's terrible. But the Heineken Zero Zero, I mean, it tastes like beer. I mean, it's, it's That's my problem. The problem is if it tastes like beer, <laughs> that, that then I'm going to quickly switch to beer and then I'll mess <laughs> it up I'll <laughs> off. Yeah. But the Seedlip's good too, right? seedless right? very yeah, They are tinkering, teetering on the and gin component. Mm-hmm. But but the age you put a big investment
1: in this the seat, but, and MJ, we've talked about my friend um James Fry, who wrote the book A Million Little Pieces. And you yeah. know it was a little bit glorified because um, uh was it um oh good um Oprah put him on the spot. And we have thirty seconds. But
11: um
1: you gotta meet him, we gotta figure out the way to do it. You need to read a little bit of the book. There's one part where he gets out of rehab. And his his buddies, they go to a bar and they they play a pool and he he orders a triple scotch right. uh, and he puts his nose deep into the into the full you know into the high high ball takes the biggest you know this is to be glorified and because right. he knew he would be over if he could get through that moment oh
16: wow yeah,
8: and, and, he so and he doesn't and he
1: doesn't believe in any any christian uh t- laden 12, I'm not even sure the 12 steps cuz I think there's some pieces to that. But he's just a maverick kind of guy you you know you got to meet. Well look, we're going to try to bring everybody back. So I'm going to close the rooms. And uh you can come back sooner than if you want.
11: Hello,
10: Rich. How are things?
1: Good. Good. Heading to Ohio today, believe it or not, to see my parents.
10: Driving or flying?
1: Um, I've cut this Delta flight that gives you the ability to cancel, so we're not sure. I'm not, and it's only me. Uh, if it was me and my wife, I'd sh- easily go car, but we'll see. Yeah, flying's not so bad. Let's take all the precautions. Um, hey, Rich, nice to see you.
10: Hey, Mark, good to see you, buddy.
1: Oh, yes. I forgot the, all the Moscow connections.
0: Non-alcoholic vodka,
1: yeah.
10: <laughs> There was life before Flemings. <laughs> before uh, before and y e
0: exactly.
6: Okay.
10: <laughs> they burned those files. <laughs> and Rich, have you ever met Maurizio? Uh,
1: I don't think so. Hi, Maurizio. You sh- you should. He's the one that that is uh, buying pieces Buy right of, the, right of the Amazon forest with a business plan. You know, creating forestry, husbanding the the area, buying buying cheap, emerging market. Um, And uh, he's putting his money where his mouth is. He basically matches the investors. They do that.
4: The interesting thing, the interesting thing is not only you buy the land cheap because about two hundred dollars an acre. That's quite cheap for any kind of forest, but uh, it's incredibly cheap when you think about the carbon value. I mean, uh, carbon prices are anywhere between. Uh, 20 and and $100, depending on where in the world and how you calculate it. But there you can buy carbon stored in trees for about $1 per ton.
11: So so
4: that's quite a good value, in my view.
1: So, look, we uh, maybe we, we could definitely talk about specifics of the Amazon, of amputee athletes, of, um, you know, Charles themes with community engagement, uh, or what, you know, partnering with Visa, uh, would, will be going forward. But, uh, I, I'd like to just ask people just general advice. Like, how does a platform like ours that's focused mainly on investing, you know, so easily I can get behind Maurizio. I could onboard him and due diligence him. And we talk about ROI for, for uh, for, you know, for nonprofits, but it, I can definitely come to a view and then we could scale those managers, right? Or scale those businesses. I also can see how our collaborative network and just, just like we're doing these breakouts, we're just making connections. Um, so, but I think we could do more and better. So I, that's, that's and, and, and we have a few other things up our sleeve, but just curious what people's
16: reactions are. Uh, anybody? Kino, I think, wants to speak.
20: Yeah so uh my startup no
1: are in the winter? Yeah. Keep going. Go.
20: Yeah so um my 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 company we're using uh sustainability as a marketing uh tool. However, it's real in the sense that we've we're a supply chain solution that's taken global supply chain and collapsed it down to hometown process. So we eliminate the effect of our our environmental impact with the planting of three trees, which cost us three dollars, and so we do that. We replenish the wood we use. We offset the electricity generation CO two and the local delivery fuel. And um, assuming assuming what we produce lasts three years, which is a conservative assumption. And so I,
1: um, I take the point. I Guys, I was asking more of a, a conceptual, not a speci- not specific
16: to any how does a platform like ours i think I, I think there needs to be a context switch with regard to the way that investors look at you know uh at acquisitions or investment and what i mean by that is when you look at social impact um one of the things that investors will real will find out is that s- s- people entrepreneurs that fall within the social impact space will go to the end of the world to uh, To achieve their goals because there's, there's a pull, there's a tug that they have beyond the pocketbook or the wallet. And so I think that now that we're coming, we're in the middle of COVID, but as we come out of COVID, I think that we need to really, really look at social impact because the pain points that exist, if you look at social impact entrepreneurs, I just – I know the tenacity behind them because there's a reason why they are doing what they are doing
1: sure you you you're both right and you're both sort of talking your books because you're tena- you're tenacious and you're helping you're do- you're doing all those things i'm I guess at some point I'm looking for more, some help so I can help others like you uh on on the philanthropic front
4: not just... Yeah, the, I man offer? Man offer sure. uh, My my sort of idea. I think uh, uh, the real thing that uh, you could contribute in helping is by creating a sort of say an information platform. What I realized is that many intelligent uh, entrepreneurs, managers, uh, directors of companies or other people, they don't yet know. Uh, that would impact investing. You can do good uh, and still make money. So many times, um, I think uh, it's not only in the U.S., but also in Europe, people are still stuck with that mentality. You're either a robber baron or you're a philanthropist, sort of the first or the second half of uh, Carnegie, Rockefeller, etc., if you're very successful. So the interesting thing would be just to uh, – Offer scalable, uh, profitable opportunities uh, to people. Just offer them information. This is possible. You can do good while making money. So uh, expose people to this possibility.
17: I agree. I agree, Maurizio. I think uh, uh, as a quick reflection of this current event, um, so our focus before was to showcase problem areas, right? So for example, in education or any other space, you're showing the problem areas. But I think given the financial orientation of the group and everything in thinking of investments and whatnot, we could also highlight certain, I guess, uh, investment themes similar to how you were doing with managing the forest uh, that are like under the impact investment side as well. Like similar with Nicole's breakout, for example, the discussion went around, you know, future technologies, what's the DOD investing in, what are potential options uh, there. So, you know, she highlighted already the problems faced uh, with amputees, like what are possible solutions. Uh, And I think solutions related to investment are what people are interested in in the group.
13: Yeah, I'd like to also share something. Um that I spent the week at the SOCAP, uh they had their virtual conference and that's all about social impact investing. And I was there for the week and I really would love to see um, a metric that takes into account heart rate of return as well as a currency rate of return. I know there are a lot of you know people and, and Gary Bulls always talks about the spectrum that there are people who are willing to believe it or not make an impact socially over maybe making some money um, and not that they don't make any money, but maybe they're not going to make as much as they would in a different kind of fund. That's not a social impact fund. So I think it would be time and we're about at a time where we can start thinking of what would a heart rate of return in terms of an investment metric look like.
16: I, I think Sarah's a hundred percent on the money. Because what is, what is the rate of return on a human life?
10: Yeah.
16: Um, and, and I, and I was in the breakout room, we were discussing from speaking to social impact investors. I've seen them looking at rates of return that they're looking at three to 5%, whereas BCS could look at 10, mm-hmm. 10 to 30 X compared to three to 5 X. They're trying to, to do something that has a return and that they, they serve a greater good and leave the world a better place. So what is the return on saving a human life? Yeah. And I think that we we are not looking at that variable. And so I think the most important thing is for people to understand, and that's why it's so important, you know, what Zach did today for people and Mauricio and, and, and the whole crew, mm-hmm. for people to understand the suffering that exists so people stop just thinking with their pocketbooks and wallets and actually look at what is the rate of return of saving someone from death or whatever it may be um, the last thing i'll say is i have a friend that created something called the lucy light that that a lot of you people would probably benefit off of which is a so the, the the company is empowered um, and they they supply a uh, an inflatable solar powered light to countries off the grid. Um, and so for education, Charles, uh, for kids that are off the grid, that can't read, you turn it, turn it over and it and it powers. And at night, the kids in Africa, they could read. And, and in these countries that are off the grid, he saw this need because he was on a trip. He turned it into a company. And now John you know, has a very profitable company and it's a B-certified social impact company. Perfect example of taking a pain point and then turning it into something that's profitable and saving lives at the same time.
4: Well, Sarah, if I may say something adding to this. The most important thing is that we need patient capital because we get the 3 to 4% return as of now, but we get an IRR of more than 15% from the beginning if you are invested for 15 years and when it comes for the hard rate of return I don't know how much you value the 400 people that already work in our companies or if you multiply that by 4, the 1600 people that uh, are their families profiting from it or uh, I don't know, the, 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 the amounts of forests, the plants and animals that are still alive uh, because we did this. So um, the being an engineer, the difficult thing is always to find the correct metric. Uh, how many animals' life is a human life worth? Um, insurance companies will give you a price of everything. Uh, but... Um, we just have to bring on the investors because if we don't have the money. We can do anything good. And if you give the investors a decent return, then all the other collateral effects, which are very good start to happen.
10: There's
20: a lot of this, a lot of the, you know, these problems stem from a tragedy of the commons type of framework, right? Where it's uh, it's a beggar thy neighbor type of, um, I mean, unfeathered capitalism. And so, you know, Bill Doisler and I were talking about the, the, um, the, the need or the responsibility, the fiduciary responsibility of money managers. Um, and there's, I mean, uh, we're trying to internalize the externalities of, um, harmful behavior. Uh, and if we can figure out that formula, Mark.
11: Yep.
1: Well, I guess I'm... I'm question. Go ahead.
12: I, I I will... I don't know who I could share this with, but there's a fascinating um, study done by a woman named Erica Chenwith at the University of Denver. And she... Um, she was she, she uh did some research on um uh nonviolent resistance to authoritarian rule or dictatorships and she hypothesizes that if you um in order to overthrow a, um an unruly government you actually need i think it's less than 3% of the total population to mobilize in collective action And I think that there, so we've been studying that in in kind of our work because I think there is some, there's some real, there's some real interest in folks who are very, you know, return on investment (laughs) heavy around like, well, what, what, what are some hypotheses we can take around what it might, what, what might catalyze real transformational change in terms of, um, you know, collective impact, if you will. So anyways, it's a fascinating read. I, I think. Uh, it just sure. triggered something for me in this conversation. You all are very, very fascinating people. You put it in the chat? The name, yeah, the- yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yep.
16: I
10: can- you
13: know, the, um, the other thing I just want to say in, with all of this is um, another area when it comes to philanthropy and community involvement is looking at intergenerational um, disc- dialogue. And intergenerational
4: um, activities. So again, Uh, I'm happy you mentioned
10: this. I'm happy you
4: mentioned this because uh, impact investing is actually one of the best way to involve the next gens. Uh, You have quite a lot of young people who all of a sudden realize with guilt, shame, and what have you that uh, they are coming into a huge amount of money and um, sometimes they even have a reaction like I don't want any of this. And the interesting thing is if you are involved in impact investing, uh, even better than philanthropy because philanthropy is just by having the money and then giving it away. Impact investing is showing that money is actually a tool for good. You can use the money to make something good while you're doing some investing and you're providing uh, uh, a safe haven uh, for the environment. You're providing jobs. uh, uh, You're doing something good. So uh, this is, I think the best way how to involve the next gens uh, who will be coming into a huge amount of money within the next years and to have them responsibly act instead of just going down the streets on Fridays for Future like they do in Europe, involve all those next gens that actually have the money and have the means or will have the money and have the means of doing something with that money for the planet, for the future.
1: I guess I'm coming, I still come back. I'm just trying to find what's our best way to for our platform to uh, opt Operate. So we have these groups and yes, we have impact next gen. I'm, I'm, and we have this survey which people are filling out. So my natural tendency is to allow people to form groups around their first around these clusters, these themes. Um, and yes, there are ancillary aspects to them. People can sort of self tag and self and, and connect. We can definitely do. More events like like this uh we you know Sarah and i are are planning one we're also planning on you know you know three six one foundation and 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 they even like almost like in a in a similar sense diligence some of these uh uh philanthropies and and but, but a lot of it's just teaming up there are a lot of smart families that are doing this in very systematic ways
4: uh mark if i may if I may interrupt you please forgive me please. I think the key here is you have all these people interested in this, and this they can do with philanthropy and whatever. Then you have all, the, all your usual biotope uh, towards uh, investing and themed investing. But the real clincher, the real uh, connection is between impact investing, where you address those themes, but try to find a way how to make money by addressing those themes and this would be something where you could really make a difference because you can get on board all these people who have some i'm always appalled by how much disconnect there is between oh yes i care about the environment yeah but in my company i need to make money you know but why don't you make money while caring for the environment why don't you save money by using up less energy by doing an energy audit in your company? So you're doing something for the climate. So there are so many things that can be done, which many people still perceive is either this or that. And actually, by putting the two together, you can make it work uh, in a profitable way.
16: Hey, Mark. What? What? Mark. What about expanding? The 361 platform, and what with regard to impact investing, and what I mean by that is take the people here who and ask them if they know five or six impact, you know, investors or firms, and bring them onto the 361 platform. So that way, because everybody has different needs, whether it's environment, addiction, or whatever it is, and really try to have a robust impact investing community. On 361 and kind of expand, uh, the 361 platform. Yeah, I, I guess I look, I totally agree. What we're, and we're, we're moving in that direction.
1: I just see there's another level of the chessboard at, at philanthropy. There's sort of investing and then there's impact and then there's philanthropy. And I'm just trying to connect some of those dots. You t- take someone like Torin Kutnick, right? You've, you've met Torin. Torin goes the whole gamut. He, he, they, they give grants. They give, they make investments that they try to make impactful and they'll even provide like, like, well, PRI and in, in, in between. And, 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 and some people have a stronger lesser, you know, lens, but if you know their passions, you can really, you could, I can just, if, if I knew everybody's, if, if, if people are, you know, technical, sports, sports, you know, someone who's just appreciates that story that's, that, that she's had, they could relate to her. Um, i don 't know if she doesn 't have i don 't I actually i 'm just learning today i don 't know what it is you have, but, but then we at the same time we have to make sure that she 's got something that 's viable I, so we all have to sort of vet it a bit right and then you know it's just sort of just what we would do with the investment world, but just applying it a bit more i don 't mind connecting anyone to anybody who's trying to do good, but if we 're trying to help people scale, we should do some vetting and i 'm just trying to work sure. provide some discipline and
16: connections. And, and Sarah just mentioned DAX.
4: My screen. May I share my screen? Yeah, yeah, yeah Of because course. I want to show you something. Sure. So, this is <clears throat> this is the whole impact sustainable investment spectrum. Okay. As you go from traditional investment, the, the guys that have been in our breakout room, please forgive me for showing this again. But you go from traditional investment, no impact, to just exclusion. You don't do alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and whatever. Then you go to ESG integration. Then you go to thematic and impact investment. And you can see you achieve different steps of uh, um, uh, impact or influence with your investment. And actually, and here you have philanthropy. There, you just give the money. You don't have any returns apart from social or hard rate returns uh, how they were called. So I think by considering all this, and I'm passionate about (laughs) this graph because I've been in impact investing for 10 years and only last week I uh, was at the talk of Credit Suisse where I uh, saw this. This, I think, is a very good summary that can show you that Here, with impact investing, you still are delivering financial returns, but you're pursuing environmental, social, and government opportunity and focusing on measurable high-impact solutions. So uh, the the red uh, uh, space, uh, which I marked here, that's where I want to focus. But, of course, here you can do even more good on those Kind of things uh, where you don't get any returns and where it's still necessary well, that we have passionate people going there
1: this is a great gra- what I'm saying is let's let's emphasize that right side a bit because when you know that someone has a passion project and that means they probably could add value to your impact and they and they feel even better that they can do both so yeah. I'm, just, I'm just trying to bring that dimension to the fore and then I think we can triage in a better way
10: But Mark, there, yeah, is no there is no there is no
1: it's just
4: different you, you saw in my in the graph it's just a sliding scale and uh, the more you go to the right the more you're into uh, doing good and after a certain point if you really want to do good you don't have any returns but not mm-hmm. everybody can afford that
17: Right. I want to add something to your graph, uh, Maurizio. Uh, what you mentioned about patient capital, uh, what I've seen is sometimes patient capital ends up being uh, philanthropic, right? Because some R&D investments, for example, you don't know when their return is going to be, basically. So you can't yeah. really model it. Uh, so it ends up being like a grant into a certain R&D area that might have a breakthrough, within reasonable unreasonable financial timelines. Um, so that's, like, what I've seen happen. Like Manus, um,
1: exactly right? The Gates Foundation gave Manus those grants would mm-hmm. prioritize the research on the uh, the uh, malaria molecule, curing molecule.
17: Yeah, the malaria molecule. Um, so uh, I, I definitely see, see that happening, like the, the patient capital going there sort of. Um, and it's it's because investment has been in you know, a relatively shorter time scale, right? You know, you're always looking within five years, for example, like for an ROI. Um, you're not looking like beyond 10 years or uh, 15, 20 years.
4: Well, in my forestry investment, I've always looked at the IRR. Because with mm-hmm. forestry, you have to wait until the trees grow. And uh, even if they – I mean – I'm blessed in South America that trees grow within 10, 20 years. Back in Europe, they take about 100 years, so we never see them mature. So it's already nice that they grow faster in South America.
16: Mm-hmm. But if you look, I, but I if have, you look at if, if you look at venture philanthropy or DAFs, right? There's a complete connection between impact and philanthropy, and so I would look at it that way too because. Philanthropy and impact are very close when you're dealing with venture philanthropy or or DAFs. And with DAFs, they're not looking for those short, you know, quick hits back. Um, So I think that that's something that that really needs to be, you know, focused on.
4: I'm in favor of everything that achieves good. I just want to point out that uh, in order to educate the next gens, in order to get as many people on board by showing that money can be a force for good. Um, Now uh, We're always talking about how much money is concentrated in just a few hands, but these hands are not always the same. It's always the younger ones that take on uh, the next generation. So it would be important to show them what good they are able to do with this uh, you know, have the cake and eat it, they can do good and still get some returns. Because uh, getting somebody who has been trained well, you have to make the return just to give the money away, that's a different uh, bucket. Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, other thoughts? I agree.
1: I was just going to show.
20: Uh, how do you
1: how do you how do you um, this, is this just a, just so you hold that thought, Tino? Just so I finally found it. So this is an example, Mauricio, of next gen, right? And great. we can revisit this. Um, you have Katie uh, Loeb. You've got uh, a Venezuelan family office. Um, you know, advisors to family offices. Uh, let's see let's see. Ken, Ken back there. You know Kevin Coster has definitely done things. Um, and you know, so this this is a group that came together, um, and it's you know it's one of our groups. And so we could definitely. The whole idea is to interconnect the groups for for various purposes. And you know, we did then. If you remember, we did a uh, an event. Actually, what kicked off. Um well, I think we had the impact event. Um, now the, the other thing, just so you, you know, we can, we can bring more vestibule product. I mean, you're an example of it, Maurizio. We should, we should sort of get on with it. Bring you on. Right? And, because we have to be systematic. We have to, we're FINRA governed, so we have to do that. We can bring on more, uh, impact oriented You know, one of the people that was in that room was um, Sophie Lazary. Her father is Mark Lazary, Avenue Capital, 12-15 billion. They now have an impact private credit fund, which we were starting. You know, we were just sort of getting going. I don't know if Joe's still on the call here. Um, Joe Zaro, are you on? I think not. Well, Joe and I were just partnering at the time. We could have brought them on as we're looking for more win-win-win situations that definitely impact investing, but I'm trying to go beyond that and and bring that full right side of the of that table. I think that'll complete the picture, and provide better connectivity. Because if I know that somebody has an interest in the Amazon, that's a no-brainer for them to look at how they can make money and and, and fulfill that goal. So my goal is to get everybody's passion projects identified so that we can bring the right impact investment as well.
13: Mark, can I say one other thing?
1: Of course. I don't think I can keep you from saying (laughs) anything.
13: When you ask, you know, what can you do, what can 361 firm do, um, I'm going to – just say this, where I think it I'm going to channel Tom Jump, where I would say it's time to do that um we're spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, surfacing issues that have been talked about over and over and over. And I think it might be a good idea to just jump in, do something, and I think that a lot of, um, uh, the, it'll catalyze a lot of activity for 361 if there is a project that comes to fruition besides just surfacing issues.
1: So on the investment side, we're doing a lot, right? We're, we're onboarding deals and getting them funded. But getting on the, if you're talking about the philanthropic, So, yes, we'll get more of those deals going and to Marisa's point.
11: We're
9: not talking about everything.
1: But if you're talking about philanthropic uh, initiatives, you know, yeah, I guess we have to sort of study and think about which one we want to back. You know, maybe, and hopefully it's sort of part of our community that that would be organic. And you can't do, you can't boil the ocean, but um, we can figure out, you know, one or two things and just, you know, one thing I really liked. I mean, it's just everybody's got their thing. But Eric Lindberg is behind this program to give prisoners uh, access to college education courses, which leads to a college educa- college degrees, which reduces recidivism. And who can't? Who's against that, right? You um, know. And, and I think there are. And if if we can find the right champions to get behind things, then I'm all in favor. Uh, we can definitely pick. Pick a couple of favorites and go for it mark uh,
20: the I mean if you can integrate our risk risk um, in the um, measurement of return, you know planting a tree is probably the lowest risk. <laughs>